What is the one question that bugs you the most? About your hair? No. We're, uh, we're past being bugged by questions unless they're very personal and you just get normal reactions, human reactions to a question. You know, but there, there used to be one about what are you going to do when the bubble bursts? That we could, we'd have hysterics because somebody always asked it. You know, it was let's, let's go down the list uh, of the questions that... Uh, oh, no. I just, uh, <laughs> what are you going to do when the bubble bursts? I haven't a clue, you know. I'm still looking for the bubble. <laughs> I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Taros. The Beatles. Naked. Once again, the Beatles. This segment was filmed especially for the Hollywood Palace in a place called Strawberry Fields. And believe me, these strawberries are really wild. Well, here they are, the Beatles. You know I know and it's a dream 
I think I know I mean a yes, but it's all wrong. That is, I think I disagree. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields. Nothing is real, nothing to get hung about. Strawberry Fields forever. Strawberry Fields forever. Strawberry Fields forever. for a second then I want to get your impression of what you've just seen as they slowly fade away what did you think of that? that is great <laughs> what did you think? I don't like their hair their mustache you didn't dig the mustaches huh? what, did you, what was your comment? I don't know they look, they look older and it ruins their image really mm -hmm. how did you feel? that was funny and you? I liked it they're ugly. <laughs> Their mustaches are weird. <laughs> How about back here? I think they went out with a twist. They're like grandfathers or something. Something man? Looks like somebody's grandfather. But they looked okay. Look good. Interesting. So that was Strawberry Fields Forever, as it was shown on the Hollywood Palace, where the films were made just for exclusive use. Nowhere else in the world. Yeah, right. <laughs> Hollywood Palace is kind of a square show. That's Van Johnson with the intro. Van Johnson, the minstrel, one of the great Batman villains. And the outro of the song is from the 11th of March edition of American Bandstand. And that is Dick Clark's familiar voice kind of leading the witnesses, if you know what I mean. I don't think Dick really liked the Beatles a whole bunch. And so I bet you he had a bug up his ass about that, too, that the Hollywood Palace, a square show like that, had the uh, videos a couple of weeks before he got to see them. Yeah. You guys got the complete two films on the 16th, but the very first glimpse was on the 11th. They showed a little bit of Penny Lane on Jukebox Jury. In black and white. In black and white. Uh, both times in black and white. Yeah. You know, the thing is interesting, Richard, to me as Americans, we did see Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields within a week of you guys, but it wasn't the first big Beatles event of 1967 on American TV. Do you remember what the first big Beatles special was on American TV in January 1967? Shea Stadium. It was indeed. Which is unbelievable, isn't it? It's just like... It, they, it was already out of date being screened in 66 in the UK, but at least the look was similar. But by 67... The progress the band had made in 20 months from Shea Stadium, it's 
gigantic. It's it it must have been like watching the Beatles in The Girl Can't Help It. It was about that outdated by 20 months later. Well, I mean, in all seriousness, for people who didn't know and saw the Shea Stadium film broadcast on US TV at the start of 67, a lot of people would have assumed that's how they still looked. Then they see Strawberry Fields' Penny Lane. It must have been a real shock. I think that's part of the reason when they played those films, both for the adults, if you will, on Hollywood Palace, you know, for the you know the, the great variety audience, and then also for um, the kids on American Bandstand. I think that's why they recoiled. Yeah, and also a lot of people must have assumed that this quick change of look, because they didn't realize it was an evolving look, but this quick change of look was just done for the videos. I think by this point, people were thoroughly confused. You'd come off the back of the religious scandal and the final tour. There weren't a lot of videos that were produced that were this sort of not people miming. It was just this, you know, the miming ban was on or whatever in, in England at the time. So, and then they got that arty Swedish film director and, you know, made my two favorite promo films, hands down. I think people were very confused by it, at least in America. And I think part of it was due to Shea Stadium being shown. Now, we've already covered 62 to 66 Beatles on TV in a previous show. That one was largely them promoting the records, right? Raising their profile at first so that people even knew who they were and then promoting the records. Once they stopped touring, from 67 onwards, they're still doing stuff to promote the records, far less, of course. You know, they're not appearing in TV comedy skits anymore. That Those days have long gone. And the messaging broadens. I mean, it, now it's not only about buy our records. It's also about all you need is love and you know, give peace a chance. Well, and yeah, and they're tying in more and more to technology, right? They shot two 35-millimeter promotional films. I mean, I'm sure all of the other rock groups were shooting in 16 or something, yeah. you know. Now, we've got McCartney appearing solo on Scene Special on the 7th of March, 67. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, that's the one where he goes on a lot about we all want the same things, straight people and hippies, and don't be frightened by, you know, the hippie ethos. I really wish the people that look sort of with anger at, at the weirdos, at the happenings, at the psychedelic freakout, would instead of just looking with anger, just look with nothing, with no feeling, you know, be unbiased about it. Because they really don't realize that what these people are talking about is something that they really want themselves. It's something that everyone wants. You know, it's personal freedom to be able to talk and be able to say things. And it's dead straight. It's a real sort of basic pleasure for everyone. But it looks weird from the outside. Even though everyone is sort of getting on very well in this society we've got, it's a bit too controlled, you know. Because you suddenly, you, you want to go and do something and somebody says, oh, no, subsection B, clause A. You can't do that, you know. And you say, well, why not? Because, uh, you know, I'm a human being and that, and haven't I got my rights? I say, well, yes, but you're not allowed to do that. And you say, well, you know, if it inter doesn't interfere with anyone, it must be okay. And they say, sorry, it still isn't, you know. So people have suddenly, I think a lot of people have twigged that this, uh, they've shut themselves in a bit, you know. They've got all these rules for everything, rules of how to live, how to paint, how to make music. And it's just not true anymore, you know. They don't, they don't work all those rules because you can't apply them because it means then that you're assuming that you know it all. 
you know, and primitive man, us, and something else, you know, and, and we don't know it all yet. And so all that all of this gang of people from International Times, Indica, and the whole scene, you know, is trying to do, is trying to see where we are now, and see what we've got around us, see any mistakes we've made, straighten them out. <laughs> you know, it's just a straightforward uh, endeavor kind of thing, you know, just to do something. Yeah. Other than what's been done before, because what's been done before isn't necessarily the answer. There could be another answer, you know. What they're saying and what they're doing is sort of nothing strange about it. It's just dead straight. But it's that they're talking about things that are a bit new, you know, and they're talking about things which people don't really know too much about yet. And so they tend to get, you know, people sort of put them down a bit and say, well, you know, weirdo, psychedelic and things. But it's really just what's going on around and they're just trying to look into it a bit. So next time you, th you see the word, you know, like sort of, any word, any, any new strange word like psychedelic, you know, drugs, the whole bit, you know, freak out music and all of that, don't immediately take it as that, you know, because your first reaction's gotta be one of fear, you know. If you don't know anything about it, you can sort of trust that it's probably gonna be all right. It's probably not that bad, because, like, it's human beings doing it, and you know vaguely what human beings do. And, you know, they, they're probably gonna think of it nearly the same way you would in that situation. He looks very, very Sergeant Pepper in that, doesn't he? He does. He, he looks pretty much how he does on the cover, which is not surprising. It was around the same time. Yeah. You know, here's Paul in his role as a spokesman for a generation, not as the only spokesman, but as a spokesman, and justifiably so at that point, the way that the Beatles are repositioning themselves. People aren't aware of that yet, but they're going to be fairly soon. And as far as I know, the next sort of big appearance by Paul is about three months later, isn't it, on the news when he's questioned about whether he's taken herbal tea. Uh, oh, yes, yes, he has been drinking tea. And yeah, and that's the one where you see a Paul that you hadn't seen before. He's angry and he doesn't have the, oh, it's just Pauly thing going on. Paul, how often have you taken LSD? About four times. And where did you get it from? Oh, you know, I mean, if I was to say where I got it from, you know, it's illegal and everything. It's silly to say that. Don't you believe that this was a, a matter which you should have kept private? Mm, but the thing is, you know, that I was asked a question by a newspaper. And the decision was whether to tell a lie or to uh, tell him the truth, you know. I decided to tell him the truth. But I, I really didn't want to say anything, you know, because if I had my decision, uh, you know, if I had it my way, I wouldn't have told anyone, you know, because I'm not trying to spread the word about this. But the man from the newspaper is the man from the mass medium, you know. I'll keep it a personal thing. If he does too, you know, if he keeps it quiet. But he wanted to spread it, so it's his responsibility, you know, for spreading it, not mine. But you're a public figure, and you said it in the first place, and you must have known that it would, made, would have made the newspapers. Yes, but to say it, you know, is only to tell the truth. I'm telling the truth, you know. I don't know what everyone's so angry about. Well, do you think you have now encouraged your fans to take drugs? I don't think it'll make any difference, you know. I don't think my fans are going to take drugs just because I did, you know. But the thing is, that's not the point anyway, you know. I was asked whether I had or not. And then from then on, 
the whole bit about how far it's going to go and how many people it's going to encourage is up to the newspapers and up to you, you know, on television. I mean, you're spreading this now at this moment. This is going into all the homes, you know, in Britain. And I'd rather it didn't, you know. But you're asking me the question. You want me to be honest. I'll be honest, you know. But as a public figure, surely you've got a responsibility to lots and no, lots of No, it's you've got the responsibility. You've got the responsibility not to spread this now. You know, I'm quite prepared to keep it as a very personal thing, if you will too. If you'll shut up about it, I will. After Paul's appearance on the ITN News, confessing to taking LSD, I remember my father coming home from work and me saying to him, the Beatles were arrested for doing drugs on a plane. <laughs> it, it must have been the narrative around that where... You know, again, sort of fairly simplistic back then, but people were sort of saying in the news, LSD is the drug that makes people think they can fly. Yes, of course. <laughs> That's a very fascinating clip. It seems so contemporary, this contempt for the media. The media does love to get eyeballs and sensational stories out there, and they don't care who they throw under the bus or what morals do or do not exist in their toolbox. They don't care. It's all about getting the story out there. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, again, that had been building, right? Because if we watch the press conferences through 65 and then 66, and of course what they went through in Manila and the States, and you see them getting more and more pissed off. By the time of the post-touring Beatles, all four of them, it's a completely different attitude, okay? I mean, you know, it's no longer the smiling mop tops, as they'd been called. Now they're just being themselves more. In public more. My perception is is probably the same as yours, which it is that critical period of, say, when they first dropped acid in the summer of 65 at Zsa, Zsa's house. I could see they're just a little bit different in the interviews a couple of days later. And then now all of a well, sudden... Well, that's the second time that John and George have dropped it. Yeah. And, and it wasn't until later that, that Paul does. I mean, Paul drops it the day after the last show on the 65 winter tour. So he goes out with the Guinness Air, Tara Brown the next night after they'd finished their last show in Cardiff, Wales in 65. Right. I remember John saying in an interview somewhere, you know, here's the guy who's the last one to drop acid of all of us. And he's the one that gets needled for, you know, oh, you're promoting this evil substance. The press asked Paul, have you taken LSD? This is how it all came out. Otherwise we didn't say a word about it, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just a, a personal Private. thing, right? The problem was it then gave the press a field day to be on all our cases, you know. I personally didn't think it was any of their business. Uh, but, you know, once he said it, uh, you know, whoever said anything in the Beatles, the other three had to deal with it, you know, which we did in, with all love because, you know, we loved each other. But uh, I could have done without it myself. It just seemed strange to me because we'd been trying to get him to take it for about 18 months. And then it just seemed funny that one day he's on the television talking all about it. This is the danger of anyone like me ever opening my mouth, you know. I can say a thing and you can come back at me and say, well, you, look, you shouldn't have said uh, you've had sex, Paul, because it's going to make everyone break out in spots and everyone going to run around having sex, you know. But if you ask me, then I'm going to say, yeah, I have, you know. And if you ask me about drugs, I'm going to say, yeah, I have, because I'm not going to tell you a lie. It doesn't do me any good, doesn't do you any good. I personally believe it won't really make people leap around taking drugs, because people are, people are like you and they're like me. You know, if they, if they want to try it, they'll try it. If they don't want to, they won't. 
Talking about messaging, as mentioned before, all you need is love. That was the Our World TV special, right? Where they were commissioned to represent Britain and John quickly came up with an anthem, as one does. Good evening. This should be a moment in television history because this programme will bring together more places throughout the world than has ever been possible before. Live pictures from across the world will be brought to us here in Britain. At the same time, they will reach millions of viewers in 24 different countries throughout the world. For some people watching, it will be the evening as it is for us. For some, it will be breakfast time. For others, the middle of the day. For others, the middle of the night. This program would not have been possible before 1967. Europe was joined to America by satellite across the Atlantic in 1962. But the link across the Pacific was not completed until 1966. This evening, by using satellites, microwaves and landlines, we will link Europe with Africa, Asia, Australia and America. Our world was going to circle the globe for the first time. Now, it won't quite do that. Because for political reasons, the Russians and a few other countries have withdrawn. It's a pity, but there it is. And now we can cover two thirds instead of all the world. We're sorry to have lost this absolute completeness. And if at the sometime in the future, our colleagues do feel able to rejoin us, we will, of course, welcome them. Even so, with two thirds of the world to cover, we have more than enough. Here in Britain, as well as receiving the programme, we're also contributing to it. We will look at the exciting new town of Cumbernauld, and from London, the still unconquerable Beatles. Other countries contributing to this programme from around the world will, of course, use their own language. But to help us understand the foreign reporters, we have Corbett Woodall, Merrill O'Keefe and Tim Gudgeon. They'll be listening to and giving you an English translation. One thing we must make clear, in the next two hours, everything will be live, no film or recording. This is Steve Race in the Beatles recording studio in London, where the latest Beatles record is at this moment being built up. Not just a single performance, but a whole montage of performances. With some friends in to help the atmosphere, this is quite an occasion. There's several days' work on that tape. For perhaps the hundredth time, the engineer runs it back to the start for yet another stage in the making of an almost certain hit record. The supervisor is George Martin, the musical brain behind all the Beatles' records. There's the orchestra coming into the studio now, and you'll notice that the musicians are not rock and roll youngsters. The Beatles get on best with symphony men. The boys began by making a basic instrumental track on their own. Then they added on top of that a second track of vocal background, and they've just added a third track. Now comes the final stage. 
It brings in a solo vocal from John Lennon and, for the first time, the orchestra. Here, then, is final mixed track take one of a song which we offer to the whole world. All you need is love. All right, we ready? Let's go for it then. Can drum musicians, please? Get on. All right, here we go then. We'll send the tape. You ready, Richard? Just come in. Okay, Jeff? Yep. All right, here we go. Okay, Richard? Here yeah. comes the tape. Watch it. Copy from the
the 25th of June, 67, that was broadcast. And that is an absolute landmark event. It really was. Later on, some of my older friends shared the tape with me. The vocal was redone. Yeah. The version that went out live is different than the record. So that was a precious early trading thing when I first got into tape trading and, and all of the collecting stuff that I do. That was a very exciting one to get. Yeah. Right through that year, they're still on the news. They're always newsworthy, the Beatles. Yeah. And another big appearance in that regard was on the 27th of August of 67. Oh, very when sad one. Yeah. Brian died. There'd already been footage of them with the Maharishi and, you know, going off to Wales and everything. And now suddenly the whole tone of that story changed. He was found in his second floor bedroom just after two o'clock this afternoon by his housekeeper. She said it was his habit to sleep late at weekends, especially if it had a tiring or perhaps upsetting week at work. She said that all yesterday he spent the day at home and yesterday evening, which was unusual for him. Mr. Epstein has been unwell now for some months, and he's been in the habit of taking tablets to help him sleep at night. Only recently, just over a month ago, he was further upset by the sudden death of his father. Friends have been trying to persuade him in the last few days to take a long holiday. But only yesterday he told one of them I feel on top of the world. Just over half an hour ago, a friend, friends have been here all afternoon and evening. They've been paying visits to the house to see his lawyer, Mr. David Jacobs. And one of them left half an hour ago and said to people around, it was an accident, a terrible and stupid accident. John, where would you be today without Mr. Epstein? I don't know. Are you, are you driving down to London tonight? Yes, somebody's taking us down here. You heard the news this afternoon, I believe. Yes. And Paul's already gone down. Yes. I see. What? You've no idea what your plans are for tomorrow? No, no. We'd just go and find out, you know. And just have to play everything by ear. Yes. I understand that Mr. Epstein was to be initiated here tomorrow. Yes. Mm. When, when was he coming up? Was he coming up in coming the afternoon? tomorrow. Just Monday, that's all we knew. Had you told him very much about the spiritual regeneration movement? Well, as, as much as we'd learned about spiritualism and various things of that nature, then we'd tried to pass on to him and he was equally as interested as we are, as everybody should be. He, he wanted to know about life as much as we do. Had you spoken to him since, your, uh, since you became interested mm. this weekend? No. no. I spoke to him uh, Wednesday evening, the, the evening before we first uh, uh, saw Maharishi's lecture, and he was in great spirits. And when did he tell you that he'd like to be initiated? Well, when we arrived here on, was it on Friday, we got a telephone call later that day to say that Brian would follow us up and be here Monday. Do you intend uh, returning to Bangor before the end of this conference? We probably won't have time now, because uh, Maharishi will only be here till about Thursday, and we'll have so much to do in London that we'll, we'll have to meet him again some other time. I understand that um, this afternoon uh, Maharishi uh, conferred with you all. Could I ask you what, he, what advice he offered you? He told us that, uh, not to get overwhelmed by grief, and to whatever thoughts we have of Brian, to keep them happy, because any thoughts we have of them, have of him will travel to him wherever he is. Had he ever met uh, Mr. Epstein? No, but he was looking forward to meeting him. I think the rest of the year is also colored by the Maharishi in their appearances, as ex with the only exception being the big one on Boxing Day, but we'll get to that. I mean, though, 
one of the really fascinating couple of television appearances, or I should say two of the really fascinating television appearances are on the Frost program um, when when John yes. and George show up on successive weeks. And George really is taking the lead and talking about transcendental meditation and talking about Maharishi. Well, because for him, he's at last talking about something serious that he's passionate about. Okay, he's no longer plugging something. He's certainly not plugging the band, plugging the music and having to do that shtick. I mean, this is him talking about something that he himself is genuinely interested in. Transcendental meditation takes you to that transcendental level of pure consciousness. But by going there often enough, you bring that level of consciousness out onto this level, or you bring this level onto that level. But the relative plus that level becomes con uh, cosmic consciousness. And that means that you're able to hold the full bliss consciousness in the relative field. So you can go about your actions all the time with bliss consciousness. Yes, that's sweet. And then can you go And then there's a that? higher one, yes. They go higher and attain what's known as God consciousness and then higher still to one known as supreme knowledge where the people who know about supreme knowledge know about all the subtle laws that control the universe. Consequently, they're able to do all those things that are called miracles. In actual fact, a miracle is just having knowledge of supreme law. And so that these people are able to do miracles, are they, when they reach this point, also able to live longer and do this? Yes, well, there's uh, lots of cases. There's a book I've been reading about a yogi known as uh, Shiva Puri Baba. He lived to be 136. And when he was 112, he got cancer of the mouth and started smoking cigarettes and got rid of it. <laughs> and there's, there's another one. <laughs> there's one who's in the Himalayas at this very moment and he's been there since, I mean it, it sounds pretty far out, you know, to the average person who doesn't know anything about this but this fellow's been there since before Jesus Christ and he's still here now in the same physical body same suit <laughs> but I mean, so that from before Jesus Christ and they, he's still there they, they get control over life and death they have complete control over everything, having attained that higher state of consciousness. And this is eventually the aim of anyone who takes that meditation. Yeah. But a long, long time ahead. Well, I think um, my issues... Life. Pardon? I mean, they don't mean this life you're going to get that uh, miracle scene. Mm. But my issues... <laughs> a few more lives, maybe. You might yes, mm. when you've returned a number of times. Yeah. yeah. But his plan is so that people from the age of, say, 15, practice it. By the time they're our age, they've already attained cosmic consciousness, that is, the state of stage bliss. Stage three, as it were, yeah. Mm. And then, and they then they're at an age where they can go and act and manage to change the world a little bit for the better, rather than sort of waiting till you're almost dying and thinking, you know, what is it? We've got to find out where we're going. It's all this thing about death. And then they start panicking. And then it's a bit late. Now, the whole point is to try and find it out at this age. And then you've got your whole life to go and act upon it. And then you set about doing something about the world around you. Well, obviously, the, if you believe in certain things and uh, other people aren't, as it were, harmonizing with these 
laws. It's all the thing about the Ten Commandments, all that. It's that sort of thing that <clears throat> certain people have laid down laws or they've said that these laws exist and we live within these laws anyway. Whether we like it or not, we're controlled by these divine laws. So if you harmonize with the laws, then everything's much nicer and nature tends to support you. Right, at that point, can we uh, throw it open to our audience here? Um, I can see in the audience a number of people who are leaders in the practicing of uh, meditation who've come along here tonight, including John Allison and Nick Clark, and also John Mortimer, who's expressed his views in print uh, on the subject of uh, meditation. So if we could turn our cameras around to the audience. John. First of all, I don't accept universal divine laws, so that's a difficulty. But I think you've really got to judge these beliefs by their pragmatic effect and the amount of good they're going to do in the world. And what worries me very much about this attitude is it seems to be tremendously self-involved and finally tremendously selfish. And the idea of sitting very quietly perfecting yourself while everybody else goes to hell around you seems to be not really... For 20 minutes a day. The most well, but it seems to me there's a great deal of very important things happening in the world. We're in a great crisis of history. And if we all wait to perfect ourselves, nothing will be done about it. But it's 20 minutes in the morning, so you can go out and do something yeah, about well, it. Yeah, well, all right, if that's all it is. Listening to what we say. But you I see, mean. this kind of doctrine of universal love, in a way, seems to me to end up by not really caring about anybody very much. Well, that's What I think point, one is needs is a little well-aimed loathing at things like President Johnson and Ronald Reagan and so on, and not sitting in San Francisco watching the flowers grow and letting Governor Reagan be elected perhaps well, that's the not the same thing, you know. States. I mean, that's uh, the f watching the flowers grow in Haight-Ashbury is not what we're talking about. No, but I think that everything, nothing that you've said has seemed to me to have any real consciousness of the historical crises in which other people are getting involved. I mean, is this fair, that the parallel that's been being drawn here, between your sort of getting very involved with meditation and that somehow being very, very selfish oh, and well, not caring about the world? Selfishness, it sounds like you're going to sit down in silence all the time. You know, you do it in the morning, say, to do your day's action, whatever it is, better. But you're putting it down saying, we can't sit down contemplating our navels while all this is going on. Yeah. The whole point of doing it is to have more energy and more control over yourself to be able to do whatever I don't think actions you've got to do. Anyone would argue with that for a moment. If some of us, what some of us here yeah. are Quakers, and we've been practicing yes. what some people would call a form of meditation, which has driven the Society of Friends into into action. Now, yeah. after last after last week's. Uh, wonderful program. We're very impressed and people have been saying to us, there's a couple of lads there who are natural Quakers. Now, do they think they're Quakers? Well, it's all the same. This is the point we've got to try and get over to people, that religion, it's only, there's only one God and they're all a branch of the same thing. And the sooner people get over this sectarianism, the better, you know. I mean, I'm a Quaker, I'm a Christian, I'm a Buddhist and I'm a Hindu. And it's all the same. Uh, people think of those things normally as different. Yeah. What is it, in what way is it that they're all the same? Well, because it's teaching the people through various forms how to approach God. And God being the, the one and only creator. But is all different... driving our friends into some kind of community? This is what's bothering us a bit. Yeah. Is this something you must do on your own? Or does it lead you into 
community action. Well, you I, must I do it on your own to attain your own uh, bliss state. Naturally, it's something that Jesus said, something about go and fix your own house first. And that's what you've got to do. Everybody goes and fixes themselves up. And when they're all straight, then they're all able to act together because we're all one anyway, whether you like it or not. The first George and John appearance on the Frost program was broadcast 29th of September and then followed up on the 4th of October. One of the great things about those shows was audience participation. You can tell the audience is just half of them are frightened for them and half of them are mad at them. Yeah. You know, what is this bullshit, basically? You know, what is this this you know funny little guy from the East, you know, speaking? Speaking in well, right, because they were used to the Beatles largely towing the line, okay? And, you know, yes, there have been a few things, and obviously in the States with Beatles bigger than Christ, but generally they towed the showbiz line, and now suddenly they're just breaking with that. You would have thought people were happier about the Maharishi because he was absolutely smaller than Christ. <laughs> and he giggled a lot more as well, from what I've heard. He's funnier than Rod. <laughs> <laughs> the big TV event for the Beatles of 67 after the Our World appearance has to be their first excursion into movie making on their own part. Oh, absolutely. And that, of course, as we all know, is Magical Mystery Tour. Which is a subject unto itself. If you lived in the BBC Southwest region, you would have got a little taste of Magical Mystery Tour, though, on a TV show called Spotlight. I guess it's like a five-minute TV show or something, like little news things or something, and was only broadcast in the Southwest region. And it was the Beatles in Plymouth on the 12th of September, 1967. So people uh, got to see it, like, once again in black and white, but a little taste of the magic that was to come. What's the film going to be all about? Uh, it's a mystery to me. Da -da -da -da. When a man buys a ticket for a magical mystery tour, he knows what to expect. We guarantee him the trip of a lifetime. And that's just what he gets. The incredible magical mystery tour. The fool on the hill sees the sun going down. And the eyes in his head see the world spinning Let's all get up and dance to a song that was a hit before your mother was born. Though she was born a long, long time ago, your mother should know. Jolly good, Sarge. Carry on. Come on, back on the bus. Okay, so then we find ourselves in 1968, and things again are going to keep changing at a pretty rapid pace. Yes. We've had already over the past few years solo appearances on TV by Paul and by John. Now it was Ringo's turn, 6th of February, 68. He appears on the debut episode of Scylla Black's show, Scylla. Oh, that's right for which Paul had written the theme song, of course, Step Inside Love, 
And Ringo did some sort of song and dance and comedy routines with Scylla on this show. Isn't that the one he did act naturally? Yeah, that's the one. And, you know, he's got um, Scylla as his ventriloquist dummy sitting on his knee. <laughs> wow. Careful. Oh, Tom, for coming on the show, Ringo. It's all right. I've even brought the mail around from the office. Now will you sing Alfie? <laughs> but surely this can't all be for me. Yes, it is. Did someone say a naughty word last week? Of course not. I wonder who it's from. Anyway, where's the letter? Here, look. Oh, who's that from? I'll look and see, eh? Okay. Right. Oh, look, this is only a blank piece of paper. I get a lot of those, you know. They're from people who are dying to write and can't think of anything to say. There's any more? There's plenty in there. There's one. Oh, this looks like a super one. Let's see what this one has to say. Oh, yeah. Dear Miss Black. Having seen your name in the newspapers, I'm wondering if you are the same Miss Black who used to keep a boarding house in Blackpool. <laughs> if you are, you may remember a Mr. and Mrs. Goslett who stayed with you in July 1937. <laughs> we have never forgotten your Cornish pasties and just lately my husband has developed a craving for them. Oh. Would it be too much trouble to send me your recipe and also my husband's grace baths, which he thinks he left under the bed? <laughs> Well, I'm sorry, Mrs. Goslett. Silla wasn't there no, in 1937. It was 1924. <laughs> I think you've just about said enough. I think we've both said enough. What's next? Me. Oh, great. I'm going to sing a song. Well, I'll go and get a season. Oh, no, I want you to introduce me. Oh, well, I don't usually introduce people, you know. Oh. But seeing it's you. Go on. Okay. Say something. All right, dear. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Miss Silla Black singing a song called I've thrown away my tweezers till my eyebrows grow again. <laughs> or in other words, I'm playing second fiddle to a football team. Hello, Ringo. So you turned up then? Oh, I. Oh, this is going to be good. This is in is it? Well, Ringo, it's very nice to see you. Now, look, Archie tells me that you're a very good ventriloquist. I'm not too bad, you know. <laughs> I say, that's remarkable. Tell me, have you got any special technique for concealing that lip movement? Or what do you think I've grown this for? <laughs> well, there's a point. I never thought of that. <laughs> well, Ringo, what about giving us the full treatment now, eh? What well, I would, I, your Yes, I really would. But, you know, I'm having such a lot of trouble with this dummy of mine. Oh, don't worry, son. I've been having trouble with this one for years. <laughs> well, go on. Let's see you do it. Hello, little girl. Hello, old man. Are you sitting comfortably? No, you've got a bunch of keys in your pocket. Oh. <laughs> What's your name, little girl? Ariadne. Ariadne what? Ariadne Stitcher. I don't wish to know that. Well, you shouldn't have asked me that. Why don't I get to say Gottlieb again? Not yet, I'll tell you when. I'm not ready yet. I want to see how bright you are first. Oh, I'm very bright. Oh, she's very bright. I'm not but I like a lot of anything that's nice. I don't so long as it's very nice. Are you rich? Well, in the way of love, I'm quite a millionaire. Just want to do. Ain't gonna put me in the movie. Ain't gonna make a big star out of me. 
funny thing about 1968 in the Beatles. You got the Lady Madonna video, yep. then they disappear. And I mean, you don't really see anything of them until September. Well, again, in the news, there would have been footage of them in India, you know, going to India, in India, coming back from India. Oh, I forgot, of course, because when they came back from India, they do make that blitz of New York to announce the formation of Apple. As you said, it is a media blitz. There's the press conference. It's a business concerning records, films, and electronics. And as a sideline, whatever it's called, manufacturing or whatever. But we want to set up a system whereby people who just want to make a film about anything don't have to go on their knees in somebody's office, probably yours. And then there's the appearance on The Tonight Show, but with a different host. Oh, Joe Garagiola. As an interviewer, he was a fine baseball player. He was, I was just going to say, he did better as a game show host for a while, uh, but he just was clearly overwhelmed or underwhelmed. I'm not quite sure which it was. <laughs> Why Johnny Carson was off on vacation that particular time, I mean, that was a blunder on Johnny's part, or maybe just out and out contempt for rock and roll and the Beatles. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Beatles, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Good evening, good evening. Can I ask you something? How did you get here? Not from England, but from the hotel with all the people out there. Uh, car. Car. Oh, you have any problems? No, no. All under control. 
Everything's always under control, huh? Officer Krupski goes through. Officer Krupski? Mm. Is he a friend of yours? Mm. 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 Are we going to do this? Yes, yes. Mm, yes. <laughs> so anyway. Okay. <laughs> yes, so how are you, Johnny? Well, I figure you've been interviewed all day if there's any questions that yeah, you'd like to ask us. What are you doing? Watching you. Where's Johnny? Some of the boys touring. We get another plug in here. Yeah. Where is he? Gaithersburg. 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 Wonderful town. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Listen, do, do you, do you uh, the four of you, socially, are you that close or when yeah. you... Yeah, we're good yeah. friends. Yeah. Sometimes when you work together, uh, I've been with groups that when the job is over, that's it. You have houses pretty much together? Uh, within 20 miles altogether. Yeah. And socially, it's... Uh, well, yeah. If, if you couldn't have... <laughs> well, we're going to get to it. If you couldn't have... to it, huh? Yes. <laughs> if you couldn't have done it in music, if it hadn't happened for you, what do you think you would like to do? Uh, I don't know, films. Films? How about you, Paul? Yeah. I'm not breaking a mood, am I? No. Huh? No, you're doing great, you know, but I mean... Well, it's speculation, no, it's, isn't it? So, yeah, what would I have liked to have been? Yeah, yes. Um, policeman. No, no, please. <laughs> uh, I don't know, you know, I was nearly going to be a teacher, but that fell through, luckily. <laughs> so I don't know, you know. Teacher. See what you're doing? <laughs> why, don't, why don't you read that and see what, 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 what the reaction now is? Now a word from your local stallion. <laughs> no? <laughs> a word from your local station. How about this uh, new organization, uh, Apple? Oh, yeah, well, you see, the tax, the, our accountant came up and said, we've got this amount of money, do you want to give it to the government or do something with it? So we thought... Which government first? Oh, any old government. Yeah. Oh, any old government. <laughs> so we decided to play businessmen for a bit because uh, we've got to run our own affairs now. So we think we got this thing called Apple, which is going to be records, films, and electronics, which all tie up, and to make a sort of an umbrella or something, so as people who want to make films about that <coughs> don't have to go on their knees in an office, mm -hmm. you know, begging for a break. You will so get it done. we'll try and do it like that, business well, and pleasure. Idea, that's the know? idea. We don't know. I mean, it's we'll find out. Difficult. We'll find out what happens. Well, that's you what know, we're trying you, to do. If you want to do something normally, you've got to go to. Big business. You've got to go to them, the big people. You know. Well, you don't even get there and because you can't get through the door because of the colour of your shoes. Or... <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, people are normally uh, big companies are so big that like if you're little and good, you, it takes you like sixty years to make it. And so people miss out on these little good people. Well, it just takes them longer. <laughs> so we're trying to find a few. Paul, is that because of your background? You came from a poor background. No, it's no sort of. It's just. That's common true. sense to us. It's a bit of that. I, I know, but... Sorry, it's only this question. No, if you, if you didn't feel it as a youngster, you wouldn't feel it now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it's just because we're... You know, we know what we've had to fight to sort of... Was uh, it tough for you to get started? Well, no tougher than anybody else, you see, but George said, uh, I'm sick of being told to keep out of the park, you know, the Arkham mm -hmm. Central Park, etc. Well, that's what it's about, you know. You, you just so we're trying to make a park people to come in and do what they want within That's symbolically speaking right, right. <laughs> 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 
Oh, is he the spokesman, would you say, John? Well, if his spokes are working, he is, and if mine are... <laughs> Listen, do you have the privacy that uh, you're leading me to believe you have, or well, is it a tough job? We have, a, <coughs> we have enough to keep us sane, you know, if we are sane, we have enough. <laughs> because uh, it's not like touring, so our life isn't like a tour, or like Hard Day's Night, or any of those things. That's only when we're doing that. Mm-hmm. We create that, or that is created. But when we're just living, it's calm. <laughs> is it calm, Paul? Yeah, not at the moment, you know. No, no, it's very hectic, me. New York. Very hectic place. Because we came uh, we came over from England, you know, and that's very sort of quiet place, you know. What's so different about New York? Louder. It's very, you know, all that sort of... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got a hit record on your hands already. <laughs> oh, you know, that happens a lot here. Don't you like that kind of life? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's all right. right. You can get into it, haven't you? Three days isn't enough to get used to that. Would you like to get into it? Uh, not today. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, love, I, I, I have something in common with both of you. I met the guru, the Maharishi, and I noticed that he went out with an act, the Beach Boys, yeah. and it mm-hmm. folded. Right. Well, we uh, found out that we made a mistake there. Yeah, that persuade him against that, you know. To go out. Yeah. 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 I it was a but we believe in meditation, but not the Maharishi and his scene. But that's an, a personal mistake we made in public, so just which saying that to these five million and ten people. When did you find out it was a mistake? Well, uh, I can't remember the date, you know, but it was in India. And meditation is good and does what they say. It's like exercise or cleaning your teeth, you know. It works. But uh, we have, we're finished with that bit of it. Dun, 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 dun. Has he changed? Is that why? Well, no, I think it's just we're seeing him a bit more in perspective, you know, because we're as naive as the next person. We get carried away with things like that, you know. I mean, we thought he was uh, Mm. magic, you know, he's floating around and flying. But now you just got off the train, huh? Right. Nice trip, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you seem to have uh, your own career to kind of switch it to where... uh, yeah. Not that you lose a group, but you seem to be changing your audience. Uh, well, you see, everything changes, so we change as well. And all the audience changes too, all the time. You know, we can't sort of put our finger on what age group or why, but we know that everything changes, and us too. When we first started, we had leather jackets on, you know, and that mm-hmm. little caps and the big cowboy boots and that. <laughs> and now he's But then we, we changed the suits, you know, he thought, no. That'll get him. And uh, we lost a whole lot of fans. They all said, you know, you've gone posh. Didn't like it, you know, because we were all clean. <laughs> so we, we sort of lost that crowd, but we gained all the ones that liked suits. And it keeps happening like that, you know. That's what keeps happening. And we lost a lot of people with Sergeant Pepper, but we, I think we gained more. Yeah. Do you think... Do you think you're going to be able to top Sergeant Pepper? Well, you know, uh, it's the next move, and I can't say yes or no, but I think so, you know. Why not? Because it's only another LP, really. It's not that important. When you when you talk about, like, Lennon-McCartney, uh, the songs that I see, do you, you work together, or is it one writes one, or...? Uh... It's all those combinations you can think of. Every combination of two people writing a song, 
in as much that we can both write them completely separately and together and not together but we obviously influence each other like groups and people do how long are you going to be here how long are you going to stay here uh, <coughs> it could be any minute now <laughs> The Tonight Show does exist in color videotape. I've never been able to get the people who have it to cough it up. And I know it's not a great performance. It's still the last time John and Paul are interviewed like that together. Earlier in the day, and dressed the same way, they appeared with PBS's Newsfront with Mitchell Krause. And that is actually, the audio survives, and that's actually a far more interesting interview. We meet two of the world-famous Beatles Quartet, John Lennon lyricist and Paul McCartney composer, in this country for a brief business visit. A lot of older people uh, seem to feel that the young people today, as I suppose older people always felt, are kind of always rebelling against the older generation, but that this rebellion has gone so much further than other rebellions. Uh, Yes, what will the next one be like? It rebel against you. uh, Yeah, depending on what we turn into. Yes. What are you going to turn into? Well, if we stay like we are now, it mightn't be bad, but we should progress and be able to still communicate with Hairy kids if this change is as important as it might be. But if it isn't, it's just the same again. What's yours? Mm. That's a good question. But as you, as you leave the 20s, and uh, how soon will that be for both of I'm you? I'm 27. And how old are you? 25. You still have a ways to go, but you talk about yourselves as grey old men, in a sense, compared to well, those years ago. It's only the way you're hearing it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've made so much money, and you, you've achieved so much success so early. Does this worry you? Uh, it's you not think? a worry. It's just uh, saved us waste in our lives, achieving it. Yeah, you know, our thing just happens to be very uh, condensed and speeded. We chose speeded a modern up, form really. of success. Very quick, because one second we were just there doing that with that much money. The next second, what people normally take a lifetime to do, was just all there suddenly, just handed. And we didn't have to do anything for it. Except for work, yeah. Not not a bit. You know, we had to work and do songs and make records and that, but it didn't feel like anything to us. You know, and so it's, that's incredible that, because it makes you think. Imagine it makes a lot of people think <laughs> who are striving. Also makes you rich. It's, it's a way of doing it. There's lots of careers to choose, and you choose one. Everybody wants to get something or make something one way or another, and we chose a modern way of making it in the so-called relative making it money and cars, because obviously we didn't want to spend our lives yeah, it's like to get could, to nowhere. If you could take a pill to just get famous and rich, a lot of people would, you know. Well, was and ours was a bit like that. Well, is this what you really wanted to do at first? You wanted to get rich? Was oh, this yeah, your objective? you know, I mean, you, you know, you, that's what You just want to make it, whatever you do. You all set out leaving school or whatever it is, and you want to make it. So you choose your field, and you make it, or you don't. Has the fun gone out of, out of your musical career? No, no, you've nothing made so like much that. Money nothing or? like that. Just that the point of making it... You see, you're asking be, questions which are quite serious you know oh yes like you're not asking us uh how you know where we get our haircut well we come so to you that can't perhaps. expect all the sort of <laughs> answers you, but you want the you're asking answers. serious questions so we're giving so you the answer you know as, as we see it mm. yes which isn't very clearly yes of course but I, of course it's mm-hmm. unclear but but now now that you you have this tremendous influence uh, which which you which you obviously have all over the world 
Do you have a particular feeling about what you want to do with this power? This Just uh, whatever it is to try and channel it for good, if we can, you know, that's the only point of doing anything. So we've got this machine and we'll try and make use of it for good and not just to have a machine. You know, you've, you've, got, you've got your life and you're faced with choices in it. You're given choices. And for us, you know, being suddenly rich and famous and in a position to do something, we've got a choice of doing either what most people do, which is just making more and more money and getting more and more rich and more and more famous, or trying to do something which will help, you know, and it sounds a bit sickly, it sounds a bit like charity, but it's obviously the one we've chosen, you know, or, you know, because it's just better. And it just might be, you know, in the long run. Might be good. Might be good. One of the big controversies in your country has been recently the whole question of, of, of racial integration and of cutting mm. off immigration and of, mm. of asking uh, some of your non-whites to go back home again. Yeah. Uh, you've been asked about this undoubtedly. Uh, no, do, do you think really. this is? Do you think this is the uh, kind of government that uh, policy well, that you want in your country? We sow, we reap, sow what we reap, whatever it is, mm. and that Britain is paying for what it did to all those countries, and to say keep out is just barking in the garden, you know, because was, whatever is going to happen will happen like that. And it was just some fellow, it. you know, just some fellow who said a speech one day, and he's, you know, he, he said what a lot of them thought. Votes, you know, and a lot Labour. of people, a lot of people in Liverpool and other places you know well uh, favour what he said, apparently. Sure, oh, yeah, because right. those people are all over the place. But you know those people. Well, that's why know, the governments are in power because most people. They don't people, know a thing, you know. Because they they're not told anything as well. You know, you know it's the, it's the people that they see. Well, you know, I'm white and he's black. Hate, hate. Hating them. And they're he's not hating. brought up any other way. <laughs> you know, they don't know anything else than that. So they, like, they've got to agree with this fellow who gets them and says, we've got a dangerous situation here. And they vote him in and he That's makes all them he feel all right and he tells them that you're right. You know what's happening. You put me in power. But what they don't know is that he knows a bit more of what's going on. That's why he's in power. But he's not going to tell them what's happening because he wants to stay in power because if they knew they wouldn't have put him in power, somebody else would be. But it's not as bad in the England as it is here. It probably is, you know, but it's just a different I don't setup. think it is. Though. You're talking about racism. Yeah, I think it's... Well, it will be then, won't it? I don't know, you know, I don't think it's as bad. Just from what I've seen, it might be, you know, because it's hidden more in England, definitely. But that might know. be worse, won't that it? That might be know. worse, yeah. But there's not, I mean, there's not, there's just not the numbers going on. Well, it's you know, just that, that, you know, England's people. that big and America's that big. <laughs> it's <laughs> much worse in England, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this whole question of <laughs> colour. <laughs> well, tell us about it. Uh, no, no, that's it. it no, go on. He was joking there. No, really? <laughs> he came round, <laughs> around the circle. Yes, mm. yes. But, but this business of colour and, 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 and the young people and, and people who follow uh, you, uh, this, is, this is, doesn't have any significance in, in the mind of many of your young people? No, it's good, you know, most people don't. It's a, it seems to be older people really have got that hang up. Yes, and musicians and the things, they their vibrations don't usually have this about what street you live on. I mean, they get that scene sorted out as soon as they meet other musicians because it's the music that counts. But there's no yeah, common denominator can... for a society. 
like music or whatever they're going for. Someone can play guitar, it doesn't matter what coloured hands he uses. You know. But it also doesn't matter for the carpenter and the bricklayer and all that, but they don't have the sort of, you know. You know, but I mean, everyone knows that anyway. There's only a few, I don't know who these people are who, who don't know that. They're the ones that, that vote for those people. <laughs> you know, there's just some funny people around who are messing it up. Lots of them. Of course, the people, people find those people. People don't like the long hair and the. the well, they, you know, yeah, we know, know those people are sick, you know, and we might all be sick, but their manifestations <laughs> of sickness are pretty, you know, horrible, really frightening. There was something in England where there's a, a kid went to the barbers and, uh, no, no, that's his uncle said, go and get your hair cut, and so he went. He just had a little bit off, you know, because he had it quite long and he liked it. And he came back with just a bit off, and so his uncle, his guardian, you know, got annoyed and dragged him back and had it all off, you know. The kid just come with a little crew cut, you know, and he's really broken up about it. And the next morning they found him on the railway lines. You know, the kid had just sort of laid down with his crew cut and... You know, I mean, there's no need for to that. To make haircuts that important is hair, insanity, you know. Yet some I mean, people just, probably say to you, uh, why, why don't you cut your hair short? Are you just wearing it that way to, to be different? No, it's just but why we, don't you wear yours we wear long, what, you know? You know is the we answer. do what we like in that respect, don't we? We please ourselves. And um, what's it got to do with some man with one eye? No, it is not. There's no... <laughs> You know that man with the one eye that's always <laughs> sitting around the back? Man asking him why your hair's long. <laughs> Yeah, of course, he's always there. You know, but you? all those things, that hair and colour and, you know, all the things that hang people up, there's no need, because there's, there's no worry. I mean, those are the least worrying things around. But those. they're the causes, aren't and they? One of the effect causes, yeah, ditto, ditto, rum, bumble, bumble. Yes. What about the Queen and the royalty in Britain? Uh, what about a hang-up? <laughs> it's not a hang-up, but, I mean, imagine being brought up like that for 2,000 years. You must be pretty freaky. And they must have a hard time trying to be human beings. I don't know if any of them ever make it, because I don't know much about them. But, I mean, it's, you feel sorry for people mm. like that, because it's like us, only worse, you know. And whether they know what's going on or not is another subject. But they've probably got their own thing, you know, inside the castle. In chest. <laughs> No, they'll just... Well, uh, you've been inside the castle. No, no. Well, I mean, you got know... Your decorations but that is a very strange life, isn't it? I mean, that's a, another manifestation you of... You don't really talk craziness. to her. Craziness. You know, you don't really talk to her, because she's uh, the Queen. It's like, you don't really talk to President Johnson ever. <laughs> you sort of shake hands and appear to talk and to And if him. they believe that they're but he's royal, the president, you know, that's you the joke. <laughs> you know, if they believe it, well... <laughs> well, they can carry on, you know, because uh, it's just very strange to think that you are royal. I mean, but they're probably that? just, just you know, great and human and have just got their own scene going, you know. There'll be one or two of them, maybe, over you the think five million. It's just million. a very difficult job and it's a you hard... You think it all should end? Uh, well, I don't no, know. Yeah. don't know about no, that. No, why? You know. But it's, it's very costly. Mm. It's priorities, <laughs> really, isn't it? Another interesting interview from just a bit later is John with Victor Spinetti on release, which was about, you know, the production going on at the appropriately named Old Vic Theatre in London. The theatrical staging of in, in His Own Right, I think the opening night was the 18th of June, and then four days later, there was the broadcast of the John and Vic interview. A Beatle at the National Theatre, an excerpt from In His Own Right, John Lennon, the writer. 
and Victor Spinetti, who adapted and directed it. It opened last Tuesday. The critics in general thought it worth trying, even if it didn't altogether work. Among the expectant audience, Lennon readers were delighted. Non-readers probably sat there astounded. aghast. Sir Laurence Olivier, director of the National Theatre, took a gamble on the play for their triple bill. It came from Lennon's books, in his own right, and a Spaniard in the works, which came out three years ago. Their collections of stories and poems, peppered with imaginative and irreverent distortions of the words, phrases and names that are part of our everyday reading, listening and viewing. BBC Panorama, Shamrock Wounds, and Jack the Nipple, alias Jack the Ripper. There's satire and melancholy and Lennon's eccentric drawings. The play weaves the verse and the prose into a picture of a boy growing up. On one side it shows his telefixated family, the human vegetables. On the other, the dreams and the fantasies he uses to escape from them. It's like looking at the clichés of post-war Britain in a hall of mirrors provided by Lennon's warped language. This was the achievement of director Victor Spinetti. When I saw the rehearsal of it, I got quite emotional, you know, as if I'd written it. I mean, I knew in my heart of hearts who was who and what the book was saying, but not enough. I was too involved with it when it was written, and any criticism it had was either just rubbish or still only writing about what was on the paper. So it took something like this to happen to make me see what what I was about then. What was interesting about it to me is it was brought, the play was brought to me to act in, you see. And when I read it, I began to feel, by reading the poems and the stories, the kind of things that happened to me as a kid, and the kind of things I heard, and thank God it corresponded with, with when John Kim received the kind of things that influenced him. In, and the, the most important line in it is really the influences upon us, the things that make us what we are, make you what you are now, yeah. or make us what we were, the things that we half heard, you know, as kids. Well, an awful lot of, mm. the, uh, of the play is about radio and TV. Well, I mean, that's, what, that's all I ever heard, didn't I? Yeah. I mean, you go home... Comic with books? Yeah. The church? Your comic books? Your church? Your classic comic? Yeah, your classic comics. Your beanos? Your school? Ah, your school, your pub, and your TV, and your radio. Exactly. And that's it. A funny thing, you didn't put in pop music. No, because up till then, it hadn't hit me. Up till ah, pop music didn't hit me till I was yeah, 16, and this is all before the things that happened before 16, really. But, but it's, not, it's not really John's childhood. It's all of ours, really, isn't it, John? It is. We're all one. No, but I mean, isn't yeah, we're all one, one, aren't we? No, but it is, you know. I mean, what's going on? <laughs> There's another thing about this boy, and that is he won't talk plain English. He, he invents his own language, yeah. which is... Which is what you did when you started writing, when your book started coming out. Well, yeah, that was a, just a hangover from school, you know. I mean, I used to make the lads laugh with that scene, talking like that, and writing poetry like that. I used to write them and just give them to friends to laugh at, and that was the end of it. So when they all go down in the book, well, it turns into a book and into a play, etc., etc. But it's just my style of humour. Instead of saying, for example, as I was oh. going to say, for sample. For yeah. sample, yeah. And he, he was astounded aghast. <laughs> yeah. Well, that. some of them is because uh, I was never any good at spelling 
all my life, you know, I never quite got the idea of spelling English and writing fine, but actually spelling the words. So, and also if I, I typed a lot of the book, and I can only do it very slowly with the finger, so the, story, the stories would be very short because I couldn't be bothered going on. <laughs> and also I'd, I'd spell it as, as you say it, like Latin really, yes. you know, or just try and do it the simplest way to get it over with, because all I'm trying to do is tell a story. And what the words is spelt like is irrelevant, really. But if they make you laugh because the word used to be spelt like that, that's great. But the thing is the story and the sound of the word. A lot of people wrote about your book and said, oh, James Joyce, Edward mm. Lear, and yeah. so on. What did you think when they said that? Well, when they said James Joyce, I hadn't... I must have come across him at school, but we hadn't done him like I remember doing Shakespeare, and I remember doing so-and-so, I remember doing Chaucer a bit, but I don't, or somebody like him doing funny words. I don't remember Joyce, you see, so the first thing they say, oh, he's, he's read James Joyce, you know, so I hadn't, so the first thing I do is buy Finnegan's <laughs> Wake and read a chapter, and it was great, you know, and I dug it, and I felt as though he was an old friend, but I couldn't make right through the book, you know. And so I read a chapter of Finnegan's Wake, and that was the end of it. So now I know what they're talking about. But I mean, he just went, he just didn't stop. <laughs> what, yeah. What actually, though, had you read that you, that you know was important to you when you were young? Only kids' books, you know. Alice in Wonderland. Oh. The poems were all from Jabberwocky started me into that kick. And drawing, I started trying to draw like Ronald Searle when I was about eight. So there was Jamberwocky and Ronald Searle I was turning into when I was 13. You know, I was determined to be Lewis Carroll with a hint of Ronald Searle. On the 30th of July, now here's a bit of fascinating footage, OK? We've got the Beatles in the studio recording Hey Jude. Oh, the experiment in television. That didn't get shown in America, I want to say, until 1970. Well... Timely as usual. Yeah. Well, you know, we were catching up. We're a little slow. You know, it's kind of like we wanted to keep that tradition we started by showing the Shea Stadium movie in January of 67, almost two years later. Yep. One of the things that I'd love to see, when you were a kid, did you ever watch uh, a kid's show called Magpie? Yep. Saw it all the time. All right. So on 10th of September, 1968, Paul brings Mary Hopkin along and they did a three-minute presentation with Mary on acoustic. There's some still pictures that survive. Yeah, I don't remember seeing that particular episode. Sadly, it's missing and presumed wiped. I've never seen a frame of it, unfortunately. But that was in September. That footage of the Beatles, you know, recording Hey Jude, or rehearsing Hey Jude at least, really fascinating because, of course, that is the day when George gets in, into it with Paul about playing a call and response on the number with his guitar and is either banished or, I don't know if he was banished to the control room, but he certainly ended up there. In, in the film that we see, we see him with Ken Scott and George Martin and Paul at, at one point as well um, at the mixing console, and he looks perfectly happy. Yeah, you don't but, see any animosity. That I no, you tell, don't. Like. Once again, unfortunately, it would be interesting to see that. But it's still great colour footage, and it's catching them at a time and in a mood that one wishes had been the case for the Get Back project. Especially when we got to hear all those White Album jams, you know, when the oh, yeah. Deluxe came out, you realise they were months. They missed it by months. They had some magic going. Whatever the hell, must have been a bad New Year's Eve or something. Now, another interesting appearance by John, this time with Yoko, 
on Frost on Sunday on the 24th of August 68. And that's one where you really see and hear a bemused audience. Yes, that's the one where John's in like a black turtleneck, I think, and he's explaining how he met Yoko. That's the first time I think anyone gets the the story of being in the Indiga Gallery and going up the ladder and it says yes, yep. and that's the reason he chose to stay. I think that's right. that was the first recitation of that story. And now uh, we want to welcome two people whom you probably know, but two people whose art exhibition this year in London had a bigger impact than any other art exhibition, certainly and whose philosophy about life and art fascinates a lot of people. Let's welcome now, please, Mr. John Lennon and Miss Yoko Ono. Nice to see you. Thank you. You've got a piece yeah. of wood here. Now tell us about the piece of wood in the nail. Oh, you tell them about it. I'll oh, hang it up. Yes. You tell us well, about it. Well, it's a, a painting called Hammer Nailing, and I just hate the idea of painters just uh, making a painting with the color balance and the right texture, etc., etc. But this is just a painting that uh, people come and uh, hammer nailing when it, wherever they want to, and that makes the shape of the painting. I see. And, and, and what do we want the people to feel as they do it? Well, they just have to find out for themselves. You know, it's just an experience. Hmm. John, can we, uh, yes. would you like to get someone in the audience to come and try? Hi, anybody like to come along? Okay. <laughs> oh, hi. I know you. <laughs> <laughs> right, and can we have someone else as well to yeah. try this? He did very well. Thank you. <laughs> now, what feeling did you get as you were doing that then? What feeling? Hmm. A feeling of satisfaction. No, well that's it then. Well, you're right. you're a successful you're a successful example, right? You move over there. Roll up, roll up. You sir. Hammer and nail in every one a winner. <laughs> right, try and hammer in a nail. A nice stroke, a nice stroke. Now, what feeling did you get out of that? Anyway? It was unbelievable. <laughs> I think this audience has been loaded tonight. <laughs> was it? Absolutely. I can't explain it, really. <laughs> but you just hammered in a nail. That's all you did. Well, that was it. It was just hammering in a nail. Oh, it is good. Is it good? Yes, it is. Try it. All right. Thank you very much. And now for Alabama, Mr. D. Frost is going to blow one. Does it have to be a new nail? Or oh, yes, I mean, because you don't want to use anybody's old nail. <laughs> I don't know where it's been, do you? He's hammering it in now, third stroke. Beautiful stroke. Beautiful. Now, how I did you feel? I know this is a terrible condemnation of me, but I just felt like a man hammering in a nail. <laughs> I felt like one hammering it in on TV. <laughs> That's more accurate. Yes. yes. Well caught. Well caught. But the, uh, but I mean, uh, just put the hat out for a collection. <laughs> right. For artists. On the way out. <laughs> I'm having a bit of a tax problem. <laughs> because this is interesting, the thing with the nails, for instance, mm -hmm. it was banging the nail in that the two of you first found that you agreed on art. And so mm -hmm. Oh yeah, well I went, to, uh, well that's her version. <laughs> she was having a show at this gallery and I knew the fellow that ran it, so it wasn't... It's a bit embarrassing being a Beatle anyway, going into a shop, never mind going into a gallery, because they either all leap on you thinking, you know, he's another mug, you know, like a Texan. 
he'll buy anything. <laughs> and I had a bit of a hang-up about art, too, having been to art school, and dis disliked the sort of attitude of the so-called artist, you know. So anyway, I finally got to this show, and uh, she had all these things on, like all these like hammer nail things, and, and that clock there, where you listen to it to a st stethoscope, all the things, and at first I reacted like, uh, like a mug, you know, like the ones that were saying they don't get a badge, you know. I think, ah, ha-ha, don't fool me with all this junk, you know. So then I, there, there was this ladder and a thing on the ceiling. So I climbed the ladder and on the ceiling it said, yes. You see, you see so I thought, oh, I agreed then. Mm. It's okay, you know. I mean, it's like those jokes, uh, while you're looking at here, you're dribbling down your trousers and that <laughs> I mean, it's all sort of connected. I mean, people get a buzz out of that in the, in the toilet, but if you put it on in a, a room, it upsets them a bit because they, they've got preconceived ideas about where those messages should be. But it said yes. And if it had said no, well, I would have carried on with my pre preconceived ideas about art and artists, you know, that they're all sort of, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But it said yes, and that was enough, you know. And then she came up and said, uh, she didn't know who I was, and was saying, do, do you like to hammer a nail in? It's five shillings. <laughs> so I said, uh, I didn't have any money either. So I said, uh, I'll hammer an imaginary nail in and give you an imaginary five shillings. And she agreed with that. She accepted that <laughs> on the same basis as we accept her work. You know, I'd accepted her work and that was, that was how we met, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, the thing is, and this comes back to the basic thing of what you're doing, really. Was it as much fun to you to bang in an imaginary nail and pay an imaginary five shillings <laughs> as it would have been if both had been real. Yes, because as a child I did a lot of imaginary bits, you know. I mean, it depends on the individual. I enjoyed then knocking the nail in. I enjoy knocking nails in walls to hang pictures up. But I also enjoy thinking I'm going to do that, but I actually won't do it. I enjoy imagining doing things just as much. Uh, don't you? I mean, you imagine a meal, you imagine sex, thing, you imagine... <laughs> A holiday, but and it's nearly thing. as good as the actual thing. No, in all cases, the real thing's much better. In all well, well, uh, my memories, <laughs> my memories of uh, holidays, uh, even on a holiday that wasn't so good, I remember the good bit. You know, it's just like that. And if you imagine it, it's all good. But I mean, if imaginary things are as good as real things, are you? <laughs> give us an imaginary song. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, thank you. Uh, but I mean, if imaginary things are as good as real things, then no, I didn't say that. I things not almost yeah. as good. Do things therefore not matter at all? It's all is it all in the mind? Well, I don't know. That's what they keep saying. That's what uh, George's cartoon kept saying in Yellow Submarine. It's all in the mind, groovy and all that. But it probably is all in the mind, you know, but I don't know. You're only awake when you realise you're awake. And when you're dreaming, you know, it is just as real as being... Whatever happens is just as real. You know, whether you actually do die in a dream or uh, fulfil whatever you're doing in a dream. It's, there's nobody to tell me that it isn't as real as this now, because how, how do you know, you know? You mean, so that the thing is as, as real as... I mean, is there, if you had to summarise, I mean, we've last got about a minute, minute to go. How could, you, how could you... It's amazing, but how could you summarise what you want to get across to our people? Have the vibrations changed? Uh, a, a little, yes. Uh, yes, to free I think, I think maybe it's got confusing with this, because we're not all that good... Uh, we're not all that articulate, and it's nerve-wracking being on TV and trying to explain yourself. Now, I we try and explain ourselves in what we do, like, and I do it mainly through music, and she does it through her art, like that, and it's hard to put words to it. Well, we're not trying to explain yeah, but the thing, we're just okay. trying to communicate. Communicate. You know? And communication itself is art, and art is communication. And so that, um, 
and, and people are getting so intelligent that you don't have to really explain too much. All you have to do is just touch each other, just shake hands, you know. And so this is a way of touching each other. We'll start communicating as we oh, end with like the audience. Join in now. Yeah. Getting the yeah, audience communicating now na, by joining in. The next month, we've got the Beatles filming the promos for Revolution and Hey Jude, the day that Ringo returned to the fold after his two-week sojourn. And that, of course, a classic moment on TV for me, watching Hey Jude with the Beatles messing around before going into it on The Frost Show. Two, three, four. Well, wait a minute, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, let him get the camera ready. Magnificent finale there, magnificent finale, a beautiful rendition. Welcome back to part three. Mate, right? Beautiful. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Are you beautiful. No, we're in black and white at this very moment, I'm afraid. But as you can see, making their first audience appearance for over a year, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. Thank you, David. Magnificent. A perfect rendition. Ladies and gentlemen, there you see the greatest tea room orchestra in the world. It's my pleasure to introduce now in their first live appearance for goodness knows how long in front of an audience, the Beatles. It's now on! The following month, the 3rd of November, Paul appears in the All My Loving documentary film by Tony Palmer. That was shown on Omnibus, the TV show Omnibus, and it's actually more than just Paul because that's also shown in that same Omnibus program was Paul and Ringo being interviewed individually at Abbey Road. Yeah. So Ringo's that's when Ringo starts almost foreshadowing the idea of sampling. He goes, with these devices, you can make a guitar sound like a piano. And you might say, well, why not just use a piano? Well, because we're using that to sound like a guitar. 
and, uh, it, and it was all shot in color. I was always frightened of classical music, and I never wanted to listen to it because it was Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and sort of big words like that and Schoenberg. I mean, something like a taxi driver the other day said, had some sheet music of a Mozart thing. And I said, what's that, you know? And he said, oh, <laughs> I said, oh that's the eyeglass stuff. You won't like that. He said, no, no, you won't like that. And I said, well, what is it, you know? He said, oh, no, you won't like it. You know, it's high class, that. It's very high class, highbrow. And uh, that kind of way, I always used to think of it. I used to think, well, you know, that is, that's very clever, all that stuff. And it isn't, you know, it's just exactly what's going on in pop at the moment. Pop music is the classical music of now. People just take our music and, you know, in a line, and we just sort of say, yeah, she was just 17. And they just, they read everything into that. You know, she was a 17-year-old nymphomaniac working on the streets of Broadway. But, you know, what we meant is she's just 17. But it might mean all the other as well. I don't know, you know. I, I have no idea if there's a, any Aeolian cadences and, you know, miasmic climaxes <laughs> and all of that. I mean, we're the last people to know about our songs because the pop world's never heard the pop world as such. Because we can't, you know, it's like if you look at a snapshot of yourself, you're looking at what tie you were wearing or whether you were looking nice in the snapshot. You know, but anyone else would just take the snapshot and say, oh, that's good, that's a snapshot of Tony, you know, that's nice. We really just always think of ourselves as just happy little songwriters, <laughs> just little rockers, you know, just playing in a rock group. But it gets more important than that after you've been over to America and you've sort of got knighted. We just don't see as much of George as we used to do. He's away so much. George Harrison's mother. Of course, as soon as he comes back, he's always he always visits us, or we go down and visit him, you know. And we're still very close to him. I get letters now from most parts of the world, quite a lot from Japan and, of course, America. And uh, some of the Iron Curtain countries started now to write it. I get maybe up to 200, 250 a week. George says, I think you're really more popular than I am now, Mum, you know, and he sees all the letters, and he has a good laugh about it. And especially when he reads some of them, they say, dear Mum, you know, he says, who's this then, you know? <laughs> it's more fun in the record if there's a few sounds that you don't really know what they are, and really they're just instruments, only something happens on here, you know, I couldn't tell you what, because we have a special man who sits here and goes like this. Ringo Starr. And the guitar turns into a piano or something, you know. And then you may say, why don't you use a piano? Because the piano sounds like a guitar. In charge of the Beatles recordings, George Martin. You can cut, you can edit, obviously, you can slow down or speed up your, your tape, you can put in backward stuff, you can put in electronic sounds which you couldn't possibly reproduce live. You can use combinations of instruments which are completely unbalanced, but you can make them balanced. You can put a, well, you can put a, a very soft flute against a huge brass chord and still make it sound loud. And then cut up the tape and really well threw it up in the air until it settled down the ground and joined them all up again together. So it was just became like a, like a, um, a patchwork quilt. And this is the kind of thing you can do on recording, which you obviously couldn't possibly do it live because it is, in fact, making up music as you go along. And when we were touring, and when it was at a sort of peak of hysteria, instead of just thinking, you know, that's nice, I mean, we could have just thought, aha, click, you know, let's use this, and for evil, you know. But there's no desire in any of our heads to sort of take over the world, you know. That was Hitler, that's what he wanted to do. 
There is, however, a desire to get power in order to use it for good. And uh, the manager came to me and said, the, the cripples are ready. Derek Taylor, Beatles publicist. I said, what are they ready for? To, the Beatles? He said, oh, yes. I said, what, what, what did they want? He said, well, they can't move that much, so maybe if the Beatles uh, patted them, uh, that would be enough. I said, I mean, lay their hands on them. He said, yeah, that, put it like that. So I went in and I said, there's a dozen paraplegics waiting for you in wheelchairs. So, good enough, they trooped out, touched them, grinned and said, you know, see you again. The Maharishi. The whole, the whole world movement has to be a, a cooperative enterprise, no? <laughs> I don't know what level he's on, but uh, he's on the we level. had a nice holiday in India and came back rested to play businessman. John Lennon. We were there four months, or George and I were. It we lost good, 13 pounds and we looked a day older. <laughs> in the midst of all this uh, activity and the world's attention and interest for transcendental meditation, I don't get a moment to think of silence. <laughs> you've got power, you've got to use it for the good. Because like everyone else, we read the papers, we go through all the things that most people go through. So if everyone wants to say a thing at a certain time, it's handy being a songwriter. You know, you can put your finger on it, like a yellow submarine. So that was the 3rd of November, 68. On the 17th, George is in L.A., and he puts in a really cool Smothers Brothers appearance there. He does, yeah. You can really see the incredible excitement of the Smothers Brothers. Oh, yeah, and you can feel the energy of the audience as well. George looks absolutely great, and he's not there to actually plug anything, is he, in particular? No. The reason he's out in Los Angeles in the first place wasn't just to show up at the Smothers Brothers. Uh, I know he was working on producing Jackie Lomax's first album on Apple, which was called Is This What You Want? Thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Our guests for tonight are the committee, uh, Dion, Jennifer Warren, really a, a great new singer, and a special guest star, Donovan. Tommy also has a special guest, uh, too, and he'd like to introduce him right now, wouldn't That's he? right. I have a beetle. <laughs> yeah, but it's not the kind of beetle you would expect it to be. It's the kind of beetle that you, uh, I think you hoped it would be. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. George Harrison. I don't know, all of you, I think, uh, saw the, uh, several weeks ago we had on, uh, your, your people did, uh, Oh, hey, dude. Hey, dude, and Revolution. <laughs> we thought, Tommy and I both thought that Hey, Jude was the best presentation that we've ever seen of the Beatles, and we're glad it was Yes, uh, so are we. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, let me introduce, this is Tommy, and this is my brother, Dick. Hi, Dick. Hi, Dick. Enjoyed your work. You look different in person. Yeah, so do you. Yeah. It's all the makeup, too yeah. much makeup. Do you have something important? Something or? very important to say on American television. You know, we don't, we, a lot of times we can't, we don't have opportunity saying anything important because it's American television. Every time you say uh, something, yeah. and, and try to say something important, they, uh, they, uh, 
clap, 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 Cue the lines. <laughs> well, whether you can say it or not, keep trying to say it. That's what's important. You get that? Yeah. <laughs> that is very important. Cue the, cue, 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 cue. Ah, just a minute, just a minute. Wait a second. Okay, cue the clap now. So George is in the swing of things here and looking all happy on the Smothers Brothers. What we didn't get to see for decades, certainly not in its finished form, was John and Yoko's appearance on Rolling Stone's Rock and Roll Circus, which they filmed on the 11th of December of 68. And, you know, doing your blues and Yoko's jam. A whole lot of Yoko. Girl, you know the reason why In the morning Wanna die In the evening Wanna die If I ain't dead already Girl, you know the reason why sky my father was of the earth but i am of the universe and you know what it's worth
criminal in some ways that we didn't get to see that for so many years and some people never lived to see it. There's some chunks that still only circulate in, in high collecting circles. You know, they did multiple takes of things and cutaway shots. Do tell us about those high collecting circles, Eric. They're very high in the Himalayas. You, you probably didn't know that the Dalai Lama is well into the Beatles. <laughs> now, what was the Beatles' first TV project of 69? Oh, I think this is one of those trick questions. I, I'm going to say starting on the 1st of January, their next TV project called Get Back. Excellent. Very good. Yes, that's right. It was intended for TV. Yeah. Well, it's why they shot it in 16. Long and Winding Road might have been a better name for it. Interesting, isn't it, if you think about it, that, you know, their first major project for TV was Magical Mystery Tour, and then their follow-up would have been Get Back. Yeah. And not that far removed from one another. 13 months? It seems like 13 years. Yeah, look how things have changed, right? Incredible. Exactly. Of course, the bedding was all over the news at the tail end of March 69, the first bed in in Amsterdam at the Hilton there. If you see all this, you, you are tend to think that sensibility has gone out of it all, isn't it? No, see this whole humdrum of reporters and photographers and filmers. But it, I think there's something, it's almost something beautiful about it, you know, because all on the Beatle tours and everything like that, there was always some, you know, people had laughs, so a few of the reporters had a good time, you know, whether they got the right photograph or the right interview. And we always had a laugh because there's always some photographer fell over or got the wrong pictures. Yeah. And also, you know, there, it's a there are many yeah. people in the world who are sensible enough when you report it, you know, they will see, you know, and it's yeah. good. No, he means that this is a madhouse, you know, but mm. it's good, you, you know, see, everything's you, too you're serious. Sitting here, you're sitting here and seeing those were the days, my friends. Oh, yeah. You know, this gives some kind of an impression that you are, you have a very sensible, very grown-up approach to this whole thing. Well, uh, you know, I'm pretty old now and she's pretty old, but we've got a sense of humour, you know. Yes. And that's what this is about, partly, you know. And the world needs sense of humour, I think, you know, that more than anything else, because the world is getting more and more violent and tense, you know. So instead of uh, becoming violent about it and say, stop the war or something, with violence, it's better to sort of say, let it spring, you know, let's stay in bed, you know, etc. It's a laugh, you know. You need I think, though, that, that flabbergasts Dutchman a bit is um, what do you see in Holland as a honeymoon country? It's a beautiful place, and Amsterdam is a place where a lot of things happen with the youth, you know. It's an important place, you know. Everywhere is important, but Amsterdam is one of them, and there's a few centres in the world, Amsterdam is one of them for youth. Many alive, vitally alive uh, youth, you know, with high ideas and everything. And the the provos and the white bicycles. I mean... Are those ideas that appeal to you, Yes, the the more peaceful are the ideas that the youth have. You know, and if we have any influence on, on youth at all, we'd like to inf- influence them in a peaceful way. You know. And communicate with them, you know. Yeah, I mean, say hello to them. We're here to say hello to people in Amsterdam or Holland. Yeah. Your approach towards life is somewhat in a non-conformistic way. Now, what do you see in a so conformistic institution as marriage? Because uh, intellectually, we know marriage is nowhere that a man should just say, here, you're married, when we've been living together for a year before it. But uh, romantically and emotionally, it's something else. It's like uh, when our divorce papers came through, it was a great relief, you know, and we didn't realize how much of a relief it was going to be till Peter came up and said, it's over. And it was only a bit of paper saying it's over. We'd we'd made the marriage over by living together while we were still married to the other two people. But just the fact that somebody said, it is over, was a relief. And the fact that we got married 
was another kind of, not relief, just a kind of joy, and it was very emotional, the actual marriage ceremony. We both got very emotional about it, and we're both quite cynical and quite hard people, but very soft as well, you know, so everybody's a bit both ways, and it was very romantic, you know. I should like to have your reaction on this, Mrs. Lennon. <laughs> That's the way you are yeah, called now. Beautiful. I uh, got this ring, you know, and of course a uh, ring is uh, to many uh, people in in contemporary world is a laugh maybe, but you know, I, I sort of broke down, you know, I felt so good about it. And it's actually, when I think of it, uh, it's uh, an old ritual, but a very functional and basic ritual, you know. I mean, it has a lot to do with sex, etc. You know, sort of putting this in and say, well... Stop it, stop it. Uh, but don't, it's kind, I'm joking, I'm joking. it's kind of loose, though. You know, yes. I, we're having it fitted here. I might as well ask you my last question now. Um, you were talking about marriage as an institution, and now the $64,000 question is, what about the kiddies? <laughs> well, we were thinking we might be nice if we conceived one in Amsterdam, you know. <laughs> we might call it Amsterdam, or peace, or hair, or bed, or something. It'd be beautiful, though. Yes. What do you think about it, Mrs. Lennon? Yes, I mean, you know, it'll be nice to conceive a child in this bed, actually, wouldn't it? <laughs> John and Yoko seemed to be everywhere at that point. I remember dinner time viewing, you know, around six o'clock, it was a current affair show that Eamon Andrews had called The Today Show, and they show up in a bag, you know, promoting bagism and getting Eamon to sit in the bag with them as well. Yeah, well, everybody's talking about it. The first thing I can remember seeing of the Beatles in 69 on TV was on 30th of April, the Glen Campbell Good Time Hour. They showed the two films for Get Back and Don't Let Me Down. And the Get Back is a slightly different cut. Oh, really? Yeah, there's slightly different shots in it. So outtakes from the Let It Be film. Yeah, of course, because Let It Be is you know still in production. Yeah. One of the really strange ones came from uh, a TV show called How Late It Is, which a few of them survive. It's a BBC One show. And uh, John and Yoko showed up to discuss their film Rape with Michael Whale. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, at Lime Grove Studios, 2nd of May, 1969, so right around the time of, you know, bed-ins. And, and uh, unfortunately, Richard, missing, presumed, wiped. Typical. It is typical. Like I say, even at that late date, you would have thought, this is like the most important band in the world. What's the deal? And then we have them at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal for the second bed-in. Of course, what we haven't mentioned is an absolutely fantastic interview to see in colour. The David Frost show, John and Yoko, the 10th of July of 69, where, you know, John basically looks like he does on the cover of Abbey Road. Yeah, actually, he does almost exactly. I love that interview because that's the one where you can tell David Frost is far more comfortable with the Beatles than maybe a few other interviewers. Because John is, uh, you know, plugging, if you can imagine, <laughs> unfinished music number two, Life with the Lions. And gifting David Yoko's box of smile. Yeah, he made out well. I, I think um, if his family <laughs> can find that amongst his personal effects, they'll. that's worth a few, Bob. I bet it is. That is just a fascinating interview to see. It was actually filmed in London, but broadcast in the US. Yeah, once again, that's why we got it in colour. When I last saw you, one of the things you were doing was very keenly this thing of knocking nails into pieces of wood, right? Well, Which I didn't do it. That was a piece of Yoko's, a piece of art that we brought along. Hello! To show you. Yeah. And to uh, explain concept art, I suppose. But we were, we were knocking, David, you're correct. You were, and that was part of just concept art, really, and part of. Another piece of. I brought you. Oh, we brought Here's another one. piece. Another piece. 
To David, a box of smile. Mm -hmm. We give him a lot of gear, he throws it away after. <laughs> <laughs> He'll regret it. Still looking for his Picassos. <laughs> See, get it? It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. You <laughs> thought you'd like it. Oh, I adore it. It's the nicest thing I've ever Self-portrait. Thank you very much indeed. I shall carry it with me at all times. I like it. Equipment. Yes, yes, we've got a little record player here because we wanted to play a bit of your record. You're now. a bit low, are you? Yes, it's rather cheap record player. I hope they can't see the name of the manufacturer on it. But the, uh, no, because you did the record where you were both photographed on the cover fairly uh, naturally naturally and you did that for what reason well the story is uh, before Yoko and I became involved I was going to produce her as a, an artist you know as a she wanted to make records and her work was all this uh, pure and simple and white so I thought I was in India remember that I was in India and I was thinking a lot you know and I was thinking uh, what would be the best LP cover for her to get over the concept of a worker. So I thought, aha, naked. And I wrote this little letter to her and I gave her a drawing, uh, which she thought, oh, hello. What? She thought I was coming funny, you see. <laughs> so then when I got home and we got involved, I thought the most natural thing was for us both to do it, because we both made the record together. So we did it, you know. And had it just been her, there wouldn't have been anything. You know. Oh, you can have nude women, that's all right, but not men, who? You know. So I didn't know what I was doing till it happened. And, there and I'm was. pleased. And it's very interesting where various record companies chose to place the price tag. Yeah. <laughs> it was in a brown paper bag in some part of the States. You know. <laughs> it's going you... for 10 quid on the black market, so... Is it really? That's now, the, this is rather respectable, though once... Well, she was a reflection this... of where we were then, Two Virgins. The music was us meeting... But why did you call it Two Virgins? Because, because we... Two yes, but I mean, it's, uh, you take every bit of poetry, literally. We were two virgins, conceptually. conceptually. We met on... Uh, our minds met on the music of the record, and our bodies met on the cover of the record. And it was just a concept. So this... That was how we were then. We considered our meeting as us two virgins meeting, right? You know, and this is what was happening then, you know. And we were in hospital having my miscarriage, and we'd been arrested on the other side. And you've been rested on the other side. So we, we, yeah. we're like a newspaper, you know. Yeah. I mean, like Beatle records are the same. They reflect what we're doing now, and you reflect what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. Only we're doing it literally. But you, but you do share with us a great deal of your lives, don't well, you? I mean, uh, you're... Everybody's hiding everybody with these walls around them. What have we got to hide, you know? Well, nothing That's after that. So, record, right. <laughs> but I mean, what, what, what about it, you know? What are we hiding from each other? Everybody's so frightened that they'll see... You know, don't, I must do this in case he sees how weak I am or how strong I am or whatever. Everybody's just got these walls around them. And we, if we can, we've broken down a few barriers between us, mm. you know, which we had to do because we had two big egos, two individual artists. And in spite of and with love, we overcame that. So what we're doing is sort of trying to share what we've experienced with everybody else that we can communicate with and say, uh, this, you know, it worked for us and it was hard. And this is, we're open, you know, we're not hiding anything as best we can. And it doesn't hurt, and it's very comfortable. So why are you so frightened? And this new record, the one with, uh, with you in the, uh, in the hospital, yes. has on one side of it, Cambridge 1969. Yes. Which... This'll get you. This... Uh, <laughs> yes. This is a... 
A live we... performance by yes. John Yoko. I'm on guitar. I'll play Can we? This is a bit more. As they used to say, I can get all that in my backyard. As they well, yeah. What is that saying to us, John? Hello. <laughs> That's just saying whatever you want it to say. It's just, just us <laughs> expressing ourselves without any words or format, Format, you know, not formalising our, our, the sound we make to make words or to make music or beat. We're just expressing ourselves like a child does. A child doesn't say, well, we have a four in the bar or we have this and that. So a child just goes, and expresses itself, you know, however it felt then. And we performed live at Cambridge. We'd never done it before, and I certainly hadn't done anything like it. I just turned my guitar on and blew my mind out, you know. And she blew hers out. Yeah. And you get it or you don't. You know. The difference between that, obviously, and a child is that a child doesn't actually put it on record and sell it for... No, but in a couple of years they were like, mm. kids of the States uh, filming in about five, six, seven, eight at school. And uh, it won't be long before they've all got their own tapes. They're, what we're saying is make your own music or... You know, this is unfinished music. We're not giving you a finished product wrapped up in a bit of paper and say, here you are, this is, aren't we clever? You know, here's a nice finished box of chocolates for you. We're giving you a box, maybe, with a few chocolates in. You put, make your own. You know. I still prefer the mirror. But the, uh, <laughs> well, young, no, youngsters no, but don't have any trouble digging it. No, no I'm not saying they should I'm not saying you're old, David, but 12-year-olds. <laughs> if you play it to a 12-year-old, they just go along with it. What do you want to do next, the pair of you? Make peace, sir. Mm. Sell it, that's all we're going to do. Whatever we do will be for peace. That. The age of advertisement. You know, if we next time yeah, the record the comes out, we'll have peace If it's on the it. age of advertisement, though, and you want to sell this thing, if people don't uh, dig or understand what you're doing, is that important to you? It if you're selling, it is important. The thing is, if we're selling a simple truth like peace is an alternative to what's going on, the reason they don't dig it or understand it is because they're so conditioned to believe that it's inevitable and man is a violent animal that always kills things. Mm. You know, and we always will have it like but that. But is it too simple a truth? Well, what is too simple about not me not killing you mm. now? Well, I think that's a good idea on the whole. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, but in, in general terms, peace. everybody so, prepares okay, peace. Okay, so what but are you doing about your responsibility? Yeah, but there must be time. Yeah, but then what do you do? I mean, it's an obvious example, but is just to say peace while it's great to say that, is it not too You've simple? To I mean, somewhere. in 1939, if you just say, peace, 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 Hitler marches everywhere. But if, if in 1918, when he was born, the, the system had been saying peace to him and not telling him he's a, a low-class little plumber or whatever he was, he wouldn't have turned into Hitler. And people, people had a choice of Hitler and some other guy. And they chose Hitler. People chose Hitler. He didn't con him. He was a good performer. But he didn't con anybody. We chose him. You know, Hitler and Germany was a manifestation of all our violence. Not Germans or Hitler. But Hitler would have been just the same. Oh, the day before, if we got up and said, peace, 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 Hitler, we might not have worked. 
I'm talking about the whole system. So let's start now, so as the next 2,000 years we have few, fewer and fewer Hitlers. Because you've got to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. If you'd have started in 1900, it might have not. If people had started thinking that way and made their feelings known to government. I mean, our fathers made it known to the boss by striking and holding up banners and marching. Now the kids are trying to do the same thing with the marching bit. It's nowhere, you know, there. Nobody takes any notice unless the vi there's violence on the fringe of the march. And the establishment now know how to handle marches. It's good games for them. You know, so you've got to use today's methods, which is selling. It's a lot of John and Yoko right the way through 69, isn't it? Culminating with Man of the Decade, which is absolutely fantastic interview. Especially when you juxtapose it with 24 Hours, which was filmed at the exact same time. As a matter of fact, there's a, a scene where they're walking on the estate at Ascot, and you can see the two camera crews. Yeah. Here we are now, right at the very end of Beatledom. You know, the, the band's going to be gone in four months, five months. And now it seems like they're finally, you know, oh, yeah, the reverent, you know, the man of the decade. That's quite a statement, considering some of the other people they considered for the title. Oh, yeah. And uh, he gives a great interview in the grounds of Tittenhurst, John. A very moving interview in some ways as well, in retrospect, where he's just talking about, you know, love and life. And he seems to have such energy for it at that point. Dear Mr. Levin, from information I received while using a Ouija board, I believe that there will be an attempt to assassinate you. The spirit that gave me this information was Brian Epstein. <laughs> He said the attempt we made in place of March 6th, 70, and Mr. Epstein also said that Paul McCartney was alive in London. <laughs> Is that true? Please take this letter seriously because I would very much prefer you to be alive in there. To work on this relationship with Yoko is very hard and we've we've got the gift of love you know but love is like a precious plant you know you can't just accept it and leave it in the cupboard or just think it's going to get on with itself or like a pet you know you've got to keep watering it you know you've got to really look after it and love you have to water and be careful of it and keep the flies off and uh, see that it's all right and nurture it you know the woodstock isle of Wight, all the mass meetings of the youth is completely positive for me. And the fact that now we're all getting to know, we're always showing our flags, you know. And when you show your flag, you're not alone, you know. It's like, we no need to be the, a few Christian martyrs because there's lots of us. And don't be afraid because uh, they do look after you, whoever's up there, you know, if you get on with it. And I'm completely positive. And when I'm negative, I've got Yoko who is just as strong as me, and it helps, you know. And uh, just, this is only the beginning. This this 60s bit was just a sniff. That the 60s was just waking up in the morning, you know. And we haven't even got to dinner time yet. And I can't wait, you know. I just can't wait. I'm so glad to be around. And it's just going to be great, and there's going to be more and more of us, and whatever you're thinking there, Mrs. Grundy of South Birmingham on toast, you know, you don't stand a chance. A, you're not going to be there when we run in it, and B, you're going to like it when you get less frightened of it, you know, and it's going to be wonderful, and I believe it. There's always somebody carrying the flag and beating the drum, you know. So they, whoever they are, don't stand a chance, because they can't beat love, because all those old bits from religion and that about love being all-powerful is true, you know. And that's the bit they can't do. You know, they can't handle it. It was all John and Yoko. But if you were a Ringo fan, you did get a bone thrown to you by the BBC 
uh, on the 18th of December. So right before John's two TV shows dedicated to him. Mm. Do you re- did you ever see Will the Real Mr. Sellers? Yeah, I did see that. Not at the time, I don't think, but I've seen it since. That is something that survives, thankfully. Shot a little bit on the QE2. It's not a grand wine, and yet I wouldn't say that it was an innocent, innocent wine. Uh, I was uh, stirred by it, but not shaken by it. Let me say that it might possibly be uh, a better Montrachet uh, 64. I would think it's better Montrachet 64. No, no, it's not. A... It isn't. No. Good Lord. Isn't better Montrachet 64 than my... It's not a Chablis, is it? No, no. Not Chablis, no. Uh, I'm right in assuming that it isn't, of course, uh, Sautern or Champagne. No. No. Seven up, is it? No. <laughs> is it water? No. Milk, is it milk? No, no, it's not milk. Jam? No, no. What is it no. then? In fact, it is half a Scotch egg. Good Lord. <laughs> what year is it? Ringo was also on lineup. That is one of the coolest Ringo appearances. That was like a week before. That was the 10th of December, 1969. Filmed on the 1st of December. Amongst other things, he's driving around in his car, being driven around in his car, being interviewed by a guy named Tony Bilbo. You see him on a small rowboat. That's the cool one, on the Thames. He's like rowing and he's in this like giant fur coat with a enormous cowboy hat or whatever the hell that is. Yeah, happens. that's right. It's sort of silver fur coat. What sort of minor social changes do you see there? I mean, for example, on the drug scene, I mean, do you think that that is going to change I radically? Think, yes. Everyone will have a right to, to take them if they want. I don't mean hard drugs because I'm really not for them and they're bad. But I think we should all have the right in our own homes, you know, to, to smoke pot if we want to. I don't anymore, personally. But, you know, I, I did it, and I, I was annoyed that I had to hide. And, you know, they keep saying, well, if you smoke pot, then you're going to go into heroin or something harder, which it doesn't follow, because it's the same chance as if you drink a bottle of beer, you're going to end up in an alley as an alcoholic, you know. I mean, it's just the same. The arguments is silly. And so I don't see where they can give me the right to drink myself to death and not smoke myself to death if that was the case, you know. Mm. I just hate someone saying, well, you can do that, and you can't do that when it doesn't harm anybody. I agree, they say, you can't kill anybody, you know, because I don't like violence, and I think that's a good rule. You know, you mustn't... As long as I don't hurt society, I think everything should be all right, you know. As long as it's, you know, I don't offend anyone as well. Are you going to move out of the country, Better? Yes, we're moving into town. I mean, basically, because you like town or, or for the kids? Well, we've been in the country now for five years. Um, we've been in Weybridge for four and then we moved to Elstead and it was just a drag coming into town every day in the car you know it took an hour and a half and then an hour and a half to get out again so it was, I just hated the idea of three hours of my a day of my life wasted sitting in a car and also it's better for Maureen if we come into town because you know at least I go into the office and do you know see a lot of people I think she's getting a bit fed up of being stuck out in the country So if we're in town, then she can leap about as much as I do. At this point, you're just not getting any Beatles together anymore, right? You know, for promos, they had stuff from the Get Back sessions to show on top of the pops for Get Back and so on. But we're not seeing them together anymore. It's all now fragmented. And it's so different. If you think back just a few years to these 
group appearances and some really fun appearances when they are in those TV skits and clearly having a good time. And it is kind of sad because it's all reflective of their story. It's almost like the Christmas records, right? How they get more and more serious and more out there as well at times. Um, and, and that's what all we're kind of left with during this tail end of their career. I think Ringo showed up on TV more with Peter Sellers in 69 than the other Beatles. Well, certainly he, he turned up with Peter Sellers more than the other Beatles turned up with Peter Sellers. Oh, that's true. But but there was, a, unfortunately, one of these things, if you have it out there, folks, one of the things I've been looking for for a while was Frost on Sunday from the 6th of December, 1969. Mm. And uh, that one is you know, Ringo, Peter Sellers, and Spike Milligan. Yeah. Do you remember on ITV, there was a TV show called With a Little Help from My Friends? It was broadcast on Christmas Eve, 1969. Ringo mimed a performance of Octopus's Garden. Yeah. They did a partially re-recorded version at Abbey Road. Uh, and and this, was, this show was George Martin's special. Mm. So it was with his blessing. And uh, the track was recorded on the 14th of December, 69, and it was shown back on Christmas Eve. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. He'd let us in, knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade. I'd ask my friends to come and see an octopus's garden with me. To be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. We would be warm below the storm in our little hideaway beneath the waves, resting our head on the seabed in an octopus's garden near a cave. Yeah. 
Well, that is different. It is. and Because once, it is. And uh, part of that spectacular was Spike Milligan and Dudmore and Lulu. And if, the Lulu's on everything, so I, I don't even have to mention Lulu. The Hollies were on that show as well. So uh, whereas the the show is missing and there's a few stills from it, it's isn't it great that we still have that track and that quality? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's also great that in February of 1970, after they'd appeared on the Simon D show on the 8th of February, John and Yoko, four days later, taped an appearance on Top of the Pops performing Instant Karma oh, and yes. did another one the following week. Those two appearances are absolutely fantastic. They captured the energy of the song and you wonder if Paul was watching any of those because that really did spell, for me, the end of the Beatles. You know, that's a sign of things to come that he's really moved on here and he's got a fantastic hit single. Yeah. I do remember watching both of them at the time So I remember laughing at Yoko just knitting yeah. and then... Also, the one where she's blindfolded again and with the signs, you know, smile. smile and all that sort of stuff. Also great about those Top of the Pops appearances, you know, we get to see Mal Evans shaking the tambourine. we got Klaus on bass. Just fantastic to see all of that. So now what outtakes have you got from Ringo's appearance on Rowan and Martin's Laughing on the 23rd of February 17th? I wish I had some, but I think actually every appearance for everyone ever made on Rowan and Martin's Laughing was an outtake. I think it's a show made of outtakes, essentially. So I think whatever he filmed, you got. Hello, I'm Peter Sellers. <laughs> Tonight I will be seen in the role of Ringo Starr. <laughs> you know, Great Britain has had its problems. There was Christine Keeler, there was the devalued pound, and of course, there was us. <laughs> and now for the bad news. Despite overwhelming objections, tonight Ringo Starr presents Rowan and Martin's Laughing. <laughs> I'm sorry, nothing I can do. <laughs> you know, Ringo, so long as you're here in Southern California, you really ought to visit Disneyland. Mm, really? Mm. Oh, you'd love it. There's so many things to see, so many things to do, and it's just wonderful. People wandering around in a daze. It's it's just a fantasy land. We've got something like that in England. Oh? We call it Parliament. <laughs> Can you say that on British telly? Now, from the beautiful downtown Burbank annex of Buckingham Palace, NBC takes another chop at Ringo Starr's presentation of Rowan and Martin's Latin. Starring Black Belt Dan Rowan and Below the Belt Dick Martin with special guest star the lovely and talented Peter Sellers appearing tonight as Ringo Starr. Ringo, which was uh, uh, your favorite hit record? I want to hold your hand. Now will you tell me which was your favorite hit record? You're adorable. <laughs> and you're weird. Well, you're the freak or the one to hold my hand. <laughs> you're, um, uh, you are, uh... Pop music? Uh, records? Re uh, re uh, British? Uh, Engelbert Humperdinck. Close enough. <laughs> you're, um, uh... Hello, Dolly. Hello, Dolly. Of course. I'd recognize you anywhere, Pearl Bailey. <laughs> Dan, have you seen The Magic Christian? No, but I ran into a tricky Moslem last week. <laughs> Great straight man, Ringo. Say, Tyrone. Sorry about that. Oh, no, no. <laughs> what plans coat. you have following the honeymoon? Oh, looking forward to a speedy recovery. <laughs> oh, Ringo Starr. You know, musicians have a terrible reputation. Tell me, 
Have you ever been busted? No. And obviously, neither of you. Oh! <laughs> How do you like that magic, Christian? <laughs> I can hardly wait to see your new picture, The Magic Christian. What was it like working in that galley with 80 topless slaves? Hmm? Topless? I thought they were wearing water wings. That's <laughs> my manager. Bingo, uh, tell me, how's laughing going down in England? Slowly but surely. I have this one shaved and sent to my room. Teresa, you are also weird. Well, different strokes for different folks. Teresa, I think I love you. You're in a lot of trouble. Bingo, has fame and fortune changed your life at all? No, it's just brought me fame and fortune. <laughs> Very interesting. Say, Dingo. The name's Ringo. Dingo, Dingo, you're in my bush. Get out of my bush. Okay. Winners get trees, losers get bushes. <laughs> Think about it. Bingo, I, um... I don't want to get really personal, but did you honestly pose nude with your wife on an album cover? No, that was John Lennon. You posed nude with John Lennon? <laughs> We're saving that for our next Ed Sullivan show. Did you get a rating with that one? Well, they say that Peter Sellers never plays himself on the screen, that he's only at ease when he's in a very heavy character makeup. Why is that? Well, you see, underneath it all, it's just a plain, ordinary, 23-year-old English housewife. Oh. <laughs> you don't believe me, do you? Oh! Hello, Mr. Sellers. No. I'm Mr. Star. Oh, Mr. Star! Woo-woo-woo! <laughs> Once they become famous, they all get how you say, big heads! <laughs> Mr. Star! Say good night, Dick. Good night, Dick. Good night, everybody. There's no truth in the rumor that my latest picture, The Magic Christian, is about Billy Graham doing card tricks. On the 5th of March, 1970, Top of the Pops played the promo film section of Let It Be. I remember watching that in black and white. And that program also contained a repeat of the Plastic Ono Band's Instant Karma. Hmm, interesting. Really? <laughs> yes. Right? So... <laughs> Of course, yeah, that must have made Paul absolutely fume. Of course, we were lucky to uh, to get this a few days before uh, Top of the Pops because this was one of the the last great Ed Sullivan show containing the Beatles. As far as I'm concerned, was this rather bizarre uh, project called The Beatles Songbook, and uh, it it was on the first of March, 1970. You got the scratchiest looking. I mean, I remember watching this as a kid, and the film looked so beat up when they showed us. Like, how many times did they run this thing through the projector? Oh, my God. Anyway, it was very interesting. They played Let It Be and Two of Us on the Ed Sullivan show. And yeah. then the rest of the show was people doing covers of Beatles songs. And it was kind of bizarre. I remember the Maxwell Silver Hammer dancers, you know, looking slightly evil. <laughs> it's It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost like celebrating them as if they, they've already split up as, as if Ed, Ed knew something that the rest of us didn't i had to check the date just because of that because it's a month away 
And one of the guests, interesting, uh, doing covers um, was Stephen Eady, who Ed Sullivan was totally in love with Edie Gourmet. And Stephen Eady had been on that Paramount charity show with the Beatles in 64. So I guess they knew the Beatles at some level or whatever, and they felt like they should be on there. But uh, it's really strange guests on that one. It's worth checking out. Now, what about Ringo's appearance on Frost on Sunday on the 29th of March? Yes, one of the last TV appearances that were at least recorded before the Beatles split up on the 10th of April. And what's interesting is in the Rowan and Martin appearance, he's got, you know, longer hair with a moustache, pretty much how he looked in Let It Be. Frost on Sunday, he's got his hair cropped pretty much like a mop top at that point. Now we come to a musical event because uh, there's a long playing record about to be unleashed on a waiting world. It's a fascinating one called Sentimental Journey and it's been done with a special motive in mind by a man you know very well. Will you welcome him now to join us, Mr. Ringo Starr. Thank you. Now, first of all, you better tell us what Sentimental Journey is. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's a lot of tracks of a lot of songs that were like my initiation to music. It's all the tracks that when my mother and my dad came home from the pub out the reds, they'd sing all these songs. It went better in the dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> but these were the, what, they're all how old, the songs? Well, between 30 and 40 years old. And so, and all of the songs on Sentimental Journey are that old, right? Yeah, it's Night and Day, Stardust, uh, Sentimental Journey, the title track. Um, have I told you lately that I love you? All those songs, you know those Not, not in front you know, of well. all these people, <laughs> yeah, is the answer to that. But the, and what do you plan after this? What do you plan for the future? I plan to do a country and western album. <laughs> do you? Yeah, because I really like country music, you know. And um, so I'm just at the moment trying to get two LPs together. And I've finished this one now. I wanted to do it for a long time, and now I'll, next I'll do the country one. And what about, will we ever see the four of you in concert together again, or only on records, do you think? Only on records, up to now. At the moment, you see, what we're all doing is, like, I'm doing my album. I've just finished it, and everyone else is doing albums. And maybe when we get all them out of the way, whoop. Whoop. That's the mice again. <laughs> yes, yeah. we'll, um, we'll make, make a few more records. But not concerts, probably. Not yet, no. And tell us how you did this number we were just about to see for us. Um, we went to the talk of the town because I went to see a show there and I was knocked out by all these stages moving round, you know, like 1940 Hollywood, which goes with the song. So we decided uh, to do it there with dancers and a band and me with a big dicky bow on, dancing for them, you know. With immense Bit elegance. of dancing for you. So let's see it now, if we could then. Mr Ringo Starr and the talk of the town in a sentimental journey coming up now. Gonna take a sentimental journey Gonna set my heart at ease Gonna make a sentimental journey To renew old memories I got my bags, got my reservation Spend each time I could afford Like a child in wild 
held on to the patient Long to hear that all aboard Seven That's the time we leave at seven Mr. Ringo Starr and his title song, Sentimental Journey. That brings us, of course, to the 10th of April 1970, where the story officially ends. The small gathering on Savile Row is only the beginning. The event is so momentous that historians may one day view it as a landmark in the decline of the British Empire. The Beatles are breaking up. Do you think the Beatles are finished? No, I don't. Why not? They'll never be finished. They're too good to ever finish. But Paul McCartney has said that he's leaving the group. Oh, rubbish. Well, if he leaves them, you know, that's it. They'll go on without him. You think the Beatles can continue just the three of them without Paul McCartney? I don't know. It's possible. I think it's possible, yeah. Well, why do you think Paul is leaving? <sighs> do I have to say? <laughs> I, just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows why he's leaving. I think there's lots of trouble with Alan Klein, that sort of thing. And he's not getting his own way. Maybe that's it, you know. He likes his own way. <laughs> Why do you think Paul McCartney's leaving? Why? Don't really know why. The only person I can really blame or put anything on is Linda. All of us, Linda. All of, yeah, all of us, really, is Linda yeah. Eastman. Who's yeah. Linda Eastman? <laughs> yes, <laughs> 
Technically, she's supposed to be Paul's wife, but she's his ruler, his guardian. She says he jumps. Why, I don't know. I wish I did. But it's, it's just too bad. A genius like that, yeah. the man that he once was, just can't let a woman do that to a man, can you? And <laughs> well, it's the truth. It is, and we all feel the same way. And it's not just the kids that like Paul. No. No. Everybody. It started in the beginning. You're just saying that because you like Paul best. It's, it's because jealousy. You're jealous. But when everybody comes to you and says that you, they can't stand it for the same reason you do, then that what you're saying isn't bad at all. Then it's the truth. It means something. Why would Paul's wife want him to leave the Beatles? Oh. Oh. <laughs> She had a $5 bet that she was going to marry Paul McCartney in the beginning. And what kind of a person is that to bet somebody that you're going to marry him? I mean, if you love her... So who knows what she's going to do now and what her purpose is for doing all this? If you love somebody, you don't do things like that. I mean, that must be really fantastic the most world-famous group And then when she's finished with him, then she'll drop him and he'll be sitting there not knowing where to go. anyway. Oh, will, there, will anyone ever replace the Beatles for you? No. Never. No, 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 no. It's just one, one Beatles group, that's it. There could not be another one. Well, what is it about them? We grew up with them. You know, they started when they were younger and we were younger. And all through these years we've just developed with them and grown up with them. And they, like, belong to us, you know? It's true. In a way. Do you agree? Yeah. You know, so that's why. Just like the people that grew up with Elvis. It's their idol, well not idol, but whatever you want to call it, you know. But there could never be another Beatles. Never. I think I'll cry now. <laughs> Derek, is it true why the Beatles really finished? No, not until they die. As long as they live and as long as they like each other, that uh, anything can happen. Then how do we understand today's developments? Well, today's developments are interesting in that Paul's first clarification of his position, uh, and uh, alongside the album, which is entirely solo, right down to the packaging, uh, they seem to show um, a desire on his part to show that he too can go it alone for a time, like John has. John's done it by deed, and, and Paul's done it with an album and a, and a few words. But Paul says in his announcement that he cannot conceive of a date when he and John Lennon will work together no, again. No, talking about Beatles or songwriting. I think it's been clear, you know, for a long time that the songwriting they did together wasn't really the key to it. That, that they're both able to write alone. The reason they wrote together really was for speed and also because they were on the road together a lot. But for years, many songs have clearly been McCartney's song or Lennon's song. But I think that the fact that he says he doesn't foresee a time is, uh, I think that's sad. But the future is open. I think it's sad. Sad in what way? Well, just because of how it's always been. I, you know, this is, we live day to day here and we live with events, but um, we sometimes look back to the days when it was, when we were younger, when we were on the road together. But it's not the end of anything, because now instead of one song, you get two. Like, instead of one album by the Beatles, we're going to get one by each other. So they're very viable still commercially, and they can always go back together. 
I think if Paul had wanted the Beatles to end, he would have ended it in, in the statement, but he hasn't. He says, I think it's in there, is the break temporary or permanent? He says, I don't know. He does say that he no longer has any relationship with the business advisor that's... He never did have that. And part of the problem is that he doesn't like Alan Klein. So it's not wholly personal reasons? No, it's a bit, he says personal, business and musical. There's a desire. They left school, you see, and became Beatles. They never were independent people. They left a collective environment like school, and then they became Beatles. And none of them ever found what they could make alone, so now they're finding out. And it's healthy enough. The fans, the real fans, will be the first to understand all of this. Well, the fans who are gathered outside right now seem to generally have an interpretation that it's his wife. It's Paul McCartney's wife, the evil one. They're calling her all sorts of names. Yes, well, she's bound to be a scapegoat, isn't she? Because if they're girls with some sort of image of Paul as an available bachelor, which is difficult to eradicate, then they'll, they'll, see, they'll see and see and speak about Linda, but they know very well because they know more about the Beatles than the Beatles do. But as long as the four of them are alive, then, then there still is a Beatles. There's no such thing as an ex-Beatle, or a former Beatle, or a retired Beatle, because um, the Beatles are something other than a pop group. I mean, many pop groups are broken up, but the Beatles are not a pop group. They're an abstraction, a sort of a repository for many, for many things. It's sort of like a pigeonhole in the sky that you can put something in and get an answer and a sort of beetle's response to a situation. Do you understand what I mean? And I think that they ful fulfill a need in, in, uh, in, in the media for uh, something that's there, that's cheerful and, and human and rich and somehow invulnerable. So the beetles, if the beetles is alive as an idea, then I think all four Beatles will respond to that idea at some time or other and become Beatles again. But it's possible they'll never put out another album or another oh, it's film. it's possible. But it's less than probable. There's always a poeticism to Derek, right? You know, that's what he brought to them as their press officer. And it comes through in every interview he ever did. I think that interview is the one Michael Palin used to model his character, Eric Manchester. Oh, yeah. He, he had the vocals down, like that cadence that's so uh, unique to him. Uh, it's, it's strange that on the same day as the Beatles are announcing and, and they're being inundated with news cameras because they've broken up, yes. in the offices, a TV show called Fact or Fantasy is being filmed. It's going to be shown in about two weeks from now. But yeah. uh, George is in there talking about prayer and meditation. With really long hair. We haven't seen jo George on camera like that before or particularly since, his hair is way past his shoulders at this point. Well, yeah, it's, I, it's saved money. See, this is how you afford the heating bill out at Henley-on-Thames, is you just don't get all these pricey haircuts. People always say, I'm the Beatle who changed the most, but really that's what I see life is about. The point is, unless you're God-conscious, then you have to change, because, because it's a waste of time. Everybody is so limited and so really useless when you think of, about the limitations on yourself and the whole thing is to change try and make everything better and better and that's what the physical world is about is change but the change that happens through uh, meditation i mean it's a, it's a gradual sort of thing but the more you realize 
like with anything, with just growing older, the more you realize it helps you in some way. With meditation, you're able to understand that there is this unity lying beneath everything. There's something there within every atom that holds it all together, and that in actual fact it really is one. But on an intellectual level to say, it is, we are one, then, I mean, again, you miss the point. It's an experience. You have to really have that perception that it's one. Maharishi said, for a forest to be green, each tree must be green. So if you stand back and criticize the rest of the people, it's again, Christ said, put your own house in order. Automatically, if I'm to criticize somebody else, I suddenly come back to myself and realize, until I'm straight, then I'm in no position to be able to criticize others. It's an interesting interview, isn't it? And his demeanor is as if, you know, he's completely oblivious to what else is going on on that day. Yeah, like, well, you know, soon after, I think it was in April, he's over in New York and he's talking about, well, I think, you know, why should we deprive the world of Beatles music? You know, we can get back together and do things, and I think we will. Well, he basically says it would be selfish of them not to. That's put right, yes, out, it would yeah. be selfish of them. And he was right. <laughs> who, who are we to argue with George? And as a final uh, interesting little bit, of course, only nine days later, I guess you could call this the end, the end, the end. Paul McCartney, Johnny on the Spot shows the Maybe I'm Amazed promo video, the one with all of Linda's pictures that's so so beautiful. It's actually one of my favorite things. Mm. Um, on the 19th of April edition of The Ed Sullivan Show. That's an appropriate end in many ways, isn't it? Well, they were amazing. Maybe I was amazed. Maybe you were amazed. Now, for fans of Beatle music, there's a wonderful new Beatles film which is opening soon and is just jammed with new songs. And as a special treat... Here are the Beatles performing the title song, Let It Be. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, 
The Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. Beatles songs yesterday was first performed in America by Paul McCartney. And joining him tonight, here is Diane Warwick and Peggy Lee. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far. God looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly, suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be There's a shadow hanging over me Oh, yesterday came suddenly Why? Yesterday 